Nobody puts baby in a corner. You talking to me? You talking to me? To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> this is God. I told you I was hot tonight. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? Your hand is staining my window. You just put the law in my hands, and I'm going to break your heart with it. What kind of beer? Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? What? Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Movies for Life. I am one of your co-hosts, Michelle Egan. And I'm Brian Kuyper. It doesn't Brian sound so much better this time? Because he's got a fancy new mic. I'm so jealous. fancy. It's a blue snowball. <laughs> you can get them down at Best <laughs> Buy for, for 50 bucks. So, uh... Yeah, I'm going to have to get one so we can match up and really sound like the professional podcast that we yes, are. Yes, absolutely professional. <laughs> 100%. We'll just keep telling yeah. ourselves that. <laughs> All right. So our topic today for this episode is courtroom movies. Yeah. And both of these are kind of interesting takes on it. I think that uh, your movie is probably more foundational to the whole genre uh, for sure. Considered the best trial movie ever yeah, yeah and i it's hard to argue with it so what's what about courtroom movies kind of fascinates you well i think a lot of times it's sort of getting down to the core of something which is something that's actually brought into uh, anatomy of a murder um i gave away your movie there but <gasps> but the finding that truth somehow and sometimes it's a shocking moment sometimes it's just quiet and revelatory in its own way and i love how these movies sort of take the verdict the film that i'm talking about and then anatomy of a murder what you're talking about both have these very different looks at how for example the lawyers interact uh how they interact with the judges and the juries how they interact with their witnesses and their clients and getting to the that core of what where their guilt or innocence hangs can be on such the smallest detail and i think maybe that's what i like about these movies they're movies about details so often oh, yeah. and uh the one we've already discussed of course you know 12 angry men is all about the details and ultimately these movies are about the characters and their reactions to you know what's what's going on with whatever the case is and like the case is obviously important but you're watching you're really watching the interplay between the characters and how they they handle themselves and like the morality questions that often come up in movies like this is like very compelling like sometimes you don't even really get the answer that you're looking for especially in my movie it's very ambiguous you don't get any kind of answers it just leaves you with more questions but it's just a really fascinating character study yeah and i think that's um what you know the verdict is as well i mean it's it's under the guise of a courtroom film but it's really about the redemption of this human from mm -hmm. the darkest point of his life there's always a, like a little bit of connected tissue mm -hmm. like we say between um our movies and i think there is just in the the, the main lawyers yeah. i think they're very similar characters in a lot of ways they are uh and also jimmy stewart's uh, buddy there he reminds me a lot of <laughs> paul newman's character right? doesn't he and mm -hmm. I, I think that's a really interesting connection between the two. Uh, they both have 
slightly enigmatic female characters named Laura, which is just bizarre, <laughs> you know, uh, between the two. <laughs> and they're both kind of like lone wolf lawyers when they have just that one other person that's there on their side. Right. Very much so, where the other group is like, it's a team, or there's the sense in, Mm -hmm. they don't show it so much in Anatomy of a Murder, but there's a sense that there's a whole team going into this, whereas in the case of Frank Galvin and then uh, Beekler, Paul Beekler in Anatomy, that they're on their own. They have to work from their own wits and their own instincts and their own intelligence to win their case, which is in both cases kind of hopeless, mm-hmm. you know. And everybody yeah. loves an underdog story, and both they're of kind course, of underdog yeah. stories. Yeah. That's what both yeah. of these are because they're both losing cases. They're open and shut, right? Or so we think. Or so we think. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that's beautiful about both of them is sort of the complexities of things and sort of the highs of oh they're they're winning they're gonna get it and then something happens it's like oh they don't got it it's a really powerful and uh, it's kind of makes it an emotional roller coaster along the way but that's engaging so let's get into the verdict yeah the verdict is from 1982 uh starring paul newman in what i personally believe is his best performance which is really saying something considering it's paul newman Mm -hmm. this is a nuanced performance it's melancholy it's fairly dark you don't often like him <laughs> uh, as a human being yeah but yeah he's got his moments where i was kind of yeah like, there there's really? there's a one moment in particular where it's like god damn it you, you <laughs> there's a sort of an understanding of of his reaction but at the same time dude you just don't do that <laughs> and um <laughs> tell me what you're talking about i can't think of oh, it right we'll now get to it this is also directed by uh sydney lumet who the amazing uh, who is really one of the truly great i guess we would call him journeyman filmmakers he recognized the collaborative nature of the of the of the medium and his filmmaking style is understated it's simple it's not not a lot of big fancy visual style but he just knows how to tell a story and how to put a movie together uh there are very few movies in his filmography that I've seen that I haven't at least really liked, if not absolutely loved. And I will admit, like, watching this kind of with Anatomy of a Murder, which is kind of more showy, more, more, got a little more fanfare to it, like, watching it with the verdict, I, the verdict is very slow and it builds up it's mostly like like we said it's mostly about the characters mm-hmm. and you're really watching this, this character drama there's not a lot of that big courtroom no action, there's not and really. that's actually one of the things i like about it um and we'll get into that mm-hmm. as as we discuss it further and it's a, it's a bit of a somber movie yeah um oh, yeah. i just found myself because i saw this for the first time um when i was I was in a on a Sidney Lumet kick where I was just trying to watch as many of his movies as I could. And just from the local library at the time, it was his movies weren't particularly on lots of streaming services at the time when I was doing this. Uh, so I would just pick up DVDs from the library of his and watch a lot of them. And I had seen a few of them before. This was this one was new to me, though, and it really hit me in a powerful way and I wasn't really sure why uh, but watching it again I actually think this is an understated kind of unsung masterpiece of filmmaking 
Yes. And I liked it more, even more this time. And it hit me even harder this time than it did the first. Maybe it's something to do with his place in life, his the fact that he's sort of washed up, that he's tired and middle-aged and a little <laughs> bit stuck. You know, I I can re, I, like I can, can see, see that, that in the Paul Newman's him. character. Well, I mean, okay, so we're about five days away from my 43rd birthday. And striking, it just struck me that, okay, 42, I, I could still like say, I, okay, I still feel reasonably like that's young. 43... Somehow just <laughs> feels like it's actually middle-aged. <laughs> you know? And I have the gray in my beard and I have the thinning hair. So I just went ahead and just shaved it all off, you know, and, and, and my hearing isn't what it used to be and all these kinds of things. And, and, you know, I, I get tired more easily and I mm-hmm. am feels sometimes Stuck in my job, you know, (laughs) things like that. So I guess, I mean, there are so many things that I do not at all relate to in Paul Newman's character in this movie. But in other ways, I'm like, can just see enough of myself to really be moved by the film and what the story that Lumet is trying to tell. I should also mention the screenplay uh, written by David Mamet. Uh, So the the dialogue is very intelligent and, and... sharp and but it's a dialogue heavy movie there are not these big courtroom moments except really one there's really only one moment that's like oh they got him you know they got it you know Mm -hmm. and and then what happens after that is just a little bit heartbreaking but even the title of the movie the verdict is ironic because when the verdict actually comes it's very understated I love that's my favorite moment. Isn't it of the beautiful? Movie. It's just beautiful. Yes. <laughs> and there's something about this is it feels so real to me. Um, in a way that a lot of courtroom dramas are just that. They're courtroom dramas. Oh, I gotcha. This lawyer's gonna objection, mm-hmm. sustained, all those other sort of things, which is great and entertaining and you know, Perry Mason and all sure. that sort of stuff, and yay, it's fun. <laughs> but but this is kind of the anti courtroom drama. I think it's so, kind, yeah. That's what it yeah, feels like. It's sort of we're not going to be dramatic. We're going to present things kind of the way they are when you're sitting on a jury or in the gallery watching a trial occur. It's not high dramatics. It's a little bit dull at times, maybe. It's a little bit mundane. And the things that happen in the courtroom and outside the courtroom, which is a big part of this movie is not always fireworks. Sometimes it's just the key moment. Oh, oh my God. Go ahead. <laughs> I just thought, no, I just thought of the part you were talking about. <laughs> that's the, need to like Paul. I don't know why I never okay, think of that. Okay, that's the okay. fireworks scene in the movie too, you know. <laughs> so anyway, some of the things that kind of fun uh, at the top of this episode, uh, we got Sidney Lumet uh, with two of his 12 Angry Men back together. Uh, Jack, Jack yeah. Warden, who was this guy who wanted to just leave and go to the sports, uh, go to the baseball game, right? The baseball game. The sports ball match, as I would call it, because <laughs> I'm a dork. And then my my man, Edward Binns, is in this as, as an archbishop. You're watching so much. I Edward am Binns watching lately. so much unintentional Edward Binns marathon over the past several weeks and months here. It's been 
really surprising and fun to see him pop up just randomly because I remember our discussion of 12 Angry Men was kind of, who is this guy and what is he doing in this movie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's not much to this actor. Yeah. What, what else has he done? Now you're, you're catching I up. I am, him. and I really like him as an actor. He's usually in very supporting roles, but he's always solid, reliable, good actor. Also, uh, besides that, we have Charlotte Rampling as Laura and whew, James Mason as Concanon, uh, who is you? You texted me before. I fucking yeah. hate him, in this movie. <laughs> and with good reason. You're supposed to not James Mason. Not James Mason. Great James actor. Mason is wonderful, but his character, character is. A piece is of shit. But the thing is, it's also there's a sense while you're watching it. Yeah, he's shrewd and intelligent and brutal and dispassionate, but he's also just really damn good at his job. And yeah. that's one of the things Whatever. that he's a worthy <laughs> adversary to the Paul Newman character. And God, you hate him just because you, and I think you need to hate him because otherwise I think it would be much sure. harder to like Paul Newman, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> because Paul Newman, Frank Galvin in this movie, we start out, the first thing we see is him showing up at people's funerals, handing them Handing cards. Well, first you see him playing oh, pinball. Oh, that's right. That that's right. Cute. The very first shot, of course, is him playing pinball, <laughs> which is really key and important because how he plays pinball is an outward display of his sort of inner feelings, you know, because in this scene, he's just morose. He's drinking. But there's a scene later where he's like, yeah, and it's like, you know, he's because yeah. because this wonderful, amazing breakthrough has occurred. But at the beginning, he's just. He's literally walking into people's funerals and handing cards to the grieving mothers. And claiming that he knows the deceased when he clearly doesn't. And the family members pick up on that and they get so pissed off rightfully. Ugh. That, yeah, that's when you're really like, oh, he's not such a great guy. But then you can also see that, I mean, yes, he's he would be described as an ambulance mm -hmm. chaser. But it also kind of seems like he's just looking for any kind of job because he can't get anything else, which makes you a little bit sympathetic for him in that way, you know, like that he's not one of those big shot lawyers that has people coming to him that he has to go out and, and find clients. And the movie takes a really yeah. long time in telling you why he can't get jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that's sort of intriguing about it. And I, I love just all of the, all of the character uh, sort of nuance things in this performance. For example, just the scene right after that, after he uh, hands a card, he's got a glass of whiskey on a table and a donut sitting on a on a newspaper. Mm -hmm. He's like X'd out all these obituaries of like the, these are the places he's already been. And the donut makes me think, oh, my gosh, is he having whiskey for breakfast? Probably. And he goes to pick up the, the glass and his hand is shaking so badly he's going to spill it. So he just leans over and like sucks out some of the whiskey yeah. <laughs> before picking up the glass. And it's just it's just character little touches like that. I mean, the eye drops that he's always using, you know, because mm -hmm. his eyes are presumably always bloodshot because he's always hung over or drunk the egg yeah. and the beer in that same scene too when he and he's taking the drink yeah. of the whiskey it's what paul newman does so well in this movie there's just a moment where he just kind of looks off uh -huh. and he's not not saying anything not doing anything but you can just see like just the weight of of everything on his face you know like he just has this moment with himself that you can really yeah, see and i i love that 
Paul Newman was cast in this movie because, okay, he was in his prime when he was doing Butch Cassidy and, you know, the staying and stuff like that. He was considered, and the hustler moves like this, like the most handsome man in in Hollywood. The hottest guy ever. Oh my God. Just a beautiful man. Uh, and, he, and he was, I mean, absolutely. But I mean, now, I mean, in the verdict, this is 1982. He's not past his prime as an actor. He's still very popular, but he's oh, yeah. older. He's got wrinkles. He's got gray. He's got sags here and there in his face, you know, and it's, he's still handsome, but in the way that it's like, he was really handsome. And now he's, Mm-hmm. just worn down, you know. He's still got those beautiful blue eyes, though. And so oh, yeah. it's an amazing performance, and and Newman really leans into it. He lets himself be less attractive. He lets himself be a little frumpy sure. and a little gross and a little... But, I mean, he's not unapproachable either. It's a beautiful balance yeah. that he's striking. And I love, you know, like things where he's sitting in, standing in the bar and he's telling stories in sort of an Irish brogue. He's playing pinball one morning and he, and he goes over to the bar, you know, just grabs an egg, cracks the egg in the beer and drinks it down. And, and, yes. <laughs> and like when the clients come in for this case and stuff and he's sitting on the... Oh, he pretends like he has a secretary. Yeah. 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 And he's, you know, like he's sitting on his desk and he's crossing his feet and it's, it's, it, there's something about that. That is so wonderful. I love I love the part where he's drunk and he's trying to and he's just sort of trashing his own office. And, you know, mm-hmm. he, he takes his credentials off the wall and he smashes them and, and the glass hits him in the face. It's, it's just like it's like he can't even do that right. Because in a movie, in yeah. a movie, you smash your credentials and it's like it's no big deal. You're just mad. And it's like he actually hurts himself. Those are just elements of it that set it up for me in a way that that are just really beautiful and then jack warden as mick says you know i have a case for you and it's a good case it's something for you you're probably going to get a settlement on this the the thing is they keep on saying he's lost all the he's had three cases in the last four years and they've all or four cases in the last three years and they've all he's lost Mm -hmm. them all because they all went to trial and he's terrible in the courtroom yeah that's why he thinks this case is perfect for him probably because he won't really have to do much work is what he's he's thinking he's just gonna gonna take a settlement settlement and and run that's what is that's what he expects at the beginning even jack warden as mick or mickey is just ready to give up on him i think basically so. does he doesn't really come back until frank begs him to help him because you know we find well they have that whole scene where he like he finds him passed out in the hallway yeah. he's got to drag him to the couch and he's like what are you doing man like it's good that he has somebody like that in his life that's going to watch out for him at least yeah. somebody and, and that's cares. one of the things that's so cool about, I, I really like, Jack Warden is sort of a big brother character to him, like in, in a good way, not like a big yeah. brother is watching you kind of sense, but, but in the sense of he just needs some guidance and I'm going to hang out, I'm going to try and help him as best I can. At the beginning, he's ready to give up, but then he's, he comes back and, and he continues to sort of play that role uh, all the way to the end even. So some of the things that we find out, like um, this this woman, she went in to have... The, this is the case. Let's put it that way. The case is this woman yes. went in to have her third baby. Um, they put her on anesthetic and she turned she she went into cardiac arrest and had and suffered brain damage and her sister and 
brother-in-law uh, of the woman who is now in a coma. They're just trying to get some money together from a settlement so that they can leave town and yeah. start over. Yeah, because it's been four years. It's been four years, yeah. It's happened four years ago, and yeah, they're just kind of ready to have some money to take care of her so that they can move on with their yeah. lives, pretty much. And the hospital happens to be owned by the Archdiocese of Boston, and Edward Binns plays the Archbishop of the Archdiocese. They are willing to settle <laughs> uh, because I love the, okay. So the scene where he, where Frank goes and he interviews the doctor, it just asks him and the doctor says, says, Hey, the doctors killed her. You know, they gave her the wrong, wrong yeah. anesthetic and they killed her. And he's like, wait, what? He wasn't expecting, he wasn't that, expecting that at that. all for anyone to say anything. He asks the doctor this question and I circled this on my notes because this is really key moment. I think he asked him, why are you doing this? You know, why are you speaking out against the hospital and by extension, the church, you know, which is pretty powerful yeah. in Boston at the time. And the doctor responds to do the right thing. Isn't that why you're doing this? And the thing is right yeah, after I, that, yeah. after he drives off, he wasn't, he, he, he cheers. Wasn't. He's like, yay, I'm going to get money. I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to be set for a while. That's next part. You know, he's listening to, the grieving sister on the phone and he's circling dollar amounts. Uh, this is where you kind of don't like oh, him. Yeah. This gosh, is where you kind of don't like so him. It's so sick. And you're just like, too. you know, maybe he really is just the whore that the nurse accuses yeah. him of being later. That nurse calls you know? him. Yeah. Cause he's trying to, he's, you can tell he's like talking all sympathetic to her on the phone. It's like, I, yeah, I know you really care about her. He's just, kind of circling that number mm -hmm. that he's he's looking for because he gets a third exactly. of the payout of whatever they get in the settlement. That's the only thing that's on his mind. Exactly. And, you know, I, I wrote down in my notes, Frank is just so thoroughly unlikable at the beginning of this film. I think he hates himself too, though. I think that's where sure. he's yeah. at. And then he goes and he he's, goes into the hospital and to take pictures of this woman on the ventilator. Well, the f he first go doesn't he go to see her first... He goes. It's only he goes for like earlier, a really short yeah. time. He goes to see her for a really short time, and everyone always talks about like you know he he finally goes and visits her. It's like, it is that's the actually second time. the second time. Yeah, the first that he's time seen was her. was um, before he talked to the doctor. So he'd been in there before, and he'd yeah. gone in to just see what was up. Then he goes back and he uh, takes the Polaroids and that shot where they're just sitting on the bed developing, and Slowly it just developing. lingers yeah. there, and you're like. Because you you got to be thinking what's going through his mind. Because they're not showing Paul Newman's face. They're showing the pictures develop mm -hmm. as though it's all sort of developing in his mind at the same time. And it's 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 kind of an ingenious way of yeah. shifting the character and shifting his motivations. But again, he does. Yeah, again, he does have that one really good moment. Paul Newman was so good at like before, like he he was taking the pictures. He he's not thinking about mm -hmm. really what he's doing at the time. He's just like he's taking the pictures, and then there's just that one shot where he he lowers the cameras down. And yeah. Like you can tell he's, he's really, really looking, looking at her. her. And then the nurses down the hall say, "Sir, you you're not supposed to be in here." And and then they show him, and he says, "I'm her attorney." I says, "I'm her attorney," and it's. Mm -hmm. And it's the moment of realization. I, that this person yeah. needs me to, to speak for her and to really see her as a person. Like he's not, he's, before that he wasn't really, see, he was seeing her as a payday. Exactly. And it's, it's such a moment and it's so beautifully and simply mm -hmm. acted. It's kind of chill inducing. 
Because then he goes to the archdiocese who hand him a check for $210,000, which he would get a third of. He's holding it in his hand. And he says to him, I came here to take your money. I can't take it. If I take the money, I'm lost. And I'll be just a rich ambulance chaser. He just can't sell his soul like that. He needs to find a way to get it back because he feels, I think he's lost his soul to some extent already. And he just needs to, this is his way to get it back. Maybe that's a overly esoteric way of looking at it, but there's, yeah. No, I think that's totally right. He had already been in sort of the Faustian deal with his previous, uh, his previous firm, you know, and they sold him out. And now he's just trying to get his, get himself back. And again, in that scene, like, like you were talking about how he's like kind of schlumpy and he doesn't move that whole time. He's just like sitting in that chair with Mm -hmm. like his briefcase and he's, he's just thinking and he's realizing he's, I think he realizes what he's Mm -hmm. up against. You know, he's there, you know, with the archbishop. And so he knows that it's, it's a big thing. Like if he does take this on, that he's going to be going up against like one of the, the, what, like the biggest institution probably in the city city at the time in Boston. And he's just like this old alcoholic lawyer, but he, yeah, he's had that realization that he's, he's got to do it for her and for himself. The next scene is (laughs) so, well, what I was going to say is you, you mentioned he just sits in the chair. He spends so much of the movie just sort of slumped in chairs. Uh, yeah, he's he leaning <laughs> over telephones. He, you know, with the telephone to his ear, and he's sitting, looking completely defeated in the chair in the courtroom. His face is a little bit stone, but you can see and sense what's going on beneath uh, in every moment. Which another another always, thing that makes always, this a great yeah. pairing with Anatomy of a Murder is Jimmy Stewart does the same kind of acting as that where he can have no expression on his face and you know exactly what he's thinking. That kind of acting, I think, is the kind that I respond to the most that there really is, you know, is if an actor can convey emotion and thought without saying anything or really even showing much on their face, it's incredible and it's rare. I just love it whenever, even if you don't know exactly what they're thinking, if you can yes. see that they're thinking, that's a, that's a very rare and gift. Yeah, it's it's magical. Next is the he goes. This is where he goes back to and finds Mickey uh, in a poker game. Right. And and I love the little exchange between them where Mickey says, well, when they give you the money, that means you won. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, that's where he asks for help. Mickey recognizes that this is his chance too. you know, this is the chance to help really help this friend to reclaim something of who he used to be. It's, it's a good scene. And then we're introduced to the villain. We have Edward Concanon, the Prince of darkness, as they call him. Such a great juxtaposition though. When you, after that scene where you can tell that, the legal team for this woman is just going to be yeah. Paul Newman and this one other guy. And then it goes right into this huge office, the long table full of lawyers. And you're like, it's, Oh shit. Like he's it's fucked. really, it's pretty great filmmaking mm-hmm. because it cuts between the two from time to time showing, you know, Paul Newman and Jack Warden sitting in a room over a pile of books, you know, and, 
And we find out like yeah. Newman has this incredible memory where he's just recalling yeah. all these cases off the top of his head. And where you can see that, you know, once he, he was, was a great and lawyer, there was a reason why he was part of this big, huge firm. That, I mean, we find that out later in the movie, but I mean, we're not spoiling anything yeah. because we spoil everything on this show. I think I think if you listen to this, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. this show already, you know that um, we're just drawing uh, comparisons from different parts of the movie. But. Yeah, that massive team and all that stuff going on. Uh, James Mason's monologue there where he says, we win the case so that the accusations against the doctors and the institutions, the hospital, the church, etc., are seen in the press and the public eyes as rank obscenity. We're basically going to ruin uh, Frank Galvin further than he already is, is what their plan is to make him look like he is doing this horrible, nasty thing to these wonderful public servants. Not even acknowledging it at all that they're just people and they're not right. infallible. He just, he sees them as another, it's just like his law firm is basically mm-hmm. an institution of like all these great men. You know, he, I think they probably see themselves as a part of that. They're not... They're, that they're so different from Paul. You know what I mean? That they're so... He doesn't have as much value They're very as, polished. As they they're very uh, rehearsed. Sure. You know, if you compare this to lawyers as actors, you have Paul Newman is yeah. kind of like the guy with the raw talent. And then exactly. uh, James yes. Mason <laughs> is the rehearsed guy with all of the credentials and the... Shakespearean classical background, if you will. All the flash, but no passion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a sense, and there's a, even a scene of rehearsing. Or you really the hate him again, God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you get why he's yeah. doing it. And the lawyers are actors on a stage. They're actors for the jury and They're for the judge. On a show. Yeah, but James yeah, Mason is really good in the role. It's he's just, really, hate, just hate he his is character. really good. <laughs> I love his the, voice. Something about his voice that just he has so his, unique. It's very unique. It's it's got it's it's got the British accent, of course, but it's yeah. also got a touch of a. There's something about it. I it's it's hard to put your finger on when describing someone's voice. I know, right? Uh, it's it's just like, like there's him something and, about it that's really cool, and I don't know what, but it is. Yeah, people like him and Claude Rains and sure, uh, yeah. and uh, Vincent Price. You know, they have this quality to their voice that's so unmistakable. He has a bit of a snake <laughs> kind of feeling to him. There's a slickness and you can see how he would be very convincing in a courtroom. That voice oh, and yeah. with the way he presents his case like yeah you can see how he would be more convincing in a way than paul newman would be and he completely re- it's like he's on stage all the time too oh yeah because he perfectly rehearses every movement this is when i'm going to go over and lean on the table this is what i'm going to go over and pour the drinks this is when i'm you know every movement that he makes in this movie it feels like he's always thinking for maximum effect mm-hmm. on the on whatever his audience is, whether it's one person or 12 in the jury. And that's one of the things that I think really works about the movie. And also I think about Sidney Lumet's style of filmmaking because he rehearses thoroughly or rehearsed. I, he's, <laughs> of course, passed on, right. um, but he would rehearse for weeks before shooting a, a foot of film because it's cheaper, <laughs> yeah. you know? When you're rehearsing, 
you can take your time to find your characters and it need not feel stagey in front of the camera, um, which is what some people would sort of bristle about. But I think Sidney Lumet is proof that the rehearsal process is a great yeah, and that's how Concannon sees this whole trial. Oh, uh-huh. God. Another part where you just absolutely hate him is when the doctor comes in and he has mm-hmm. that line because um, the doctor that's going to, to testify for, for Paul Newman's side, um, he's like an older black doctor. And yeah. he has that moment oh, where that. he's like, Ugh. don't mention the fact that he's black at all. Like, don't bring that up at all. But let's have a let's have a black lawyer sitting at our table with us for the jury. It's exactly. just like you piece of shit. Oh my I, god! I wrote that down as one of those lines. It's like oh that character uh, moment. It's just like Oig. we are. Uh, he has a moment with uh, Charlotte Rampling's character where we meet Laura for the first time. She's mm-hmm. just looking for a um, mm-hmm. an apartment, I think. And he has this conversation with her. Well, he goes into it. This is actually, I guess, the second time he's met her. He sees her in the bar again, and he says to Jack Warden, excuse me, I'm going to get laid. (laughs) And he's just like, oh, what an asshole. What what an asshole. Uh, But she's kind of into him. It's Paul Newman. It's Paul Newman. (laughs) He's a hottie. (laughs) I can't uh, disagree with that, you know, to be honest. No, you can't. He's he's a a very attractive man. Um, But, you know, he's he's just kind of talking about jury selection and and sort of the art of it and how it all happens and and he's so passionate about his work again all of a sudden you know and it's kind of a beautiful scene um where you can see why she yeah, she doesn't act she doesn't act bored or anything she's no. very interested she's another character that's very quiet and doesn't uh-huh. really have a whole lot to do in a way but you can yeah, again. First, you can you can feel her. You can feel what she's feeling. Yeah. At, at first, there's a sense of why is she in this yeah. movie? Uh, I and I get that, but I think it becomes apparent as the movie goes on. Not because of her quote unquote betrayal. That's not even the scene I'm talking about. She brings him yeah. life, you know, uh, and she is fully in control of herself and sure of herself and knows what she wants. And yes, she does in fact get him late. Um, but <laughs> it's uh, uh, the next. But she's also morning. Not put up no, with she's not him just, either. She's not. She's not just going to fuck anybody. You know, that's not what the character is, and that's not what that's. That's not how the scene reads to me yeah. either. Uh, so, and then the next day, he's is when he's exuberantly playing pinball, seeing seeing the score go up and up and up, and he's just like, yeah. You know, and you can, it's like, (laughs) he's he's got, it's, it's, it's victory and you're happy for him. And and it's so interesting to have such a thoroughly unlikable character as Frank is earlier in this film, but you are kind of being wooed to his side by this point. If you're not, I, I, this movie. Well, yeah, because it's it's easy to not like him, but you can also see where he's coming from and what he's been through to get to where he is now and maybe why he's a little bit more desperate and a little more dispassionate and has a little less humanity you know you kind of you lose some of that when you've lost something really important to you like he did with his job yeah and this is where we start finding out about his accusation for jury that could beat you down and wear you down and yeah Mm -hmm. get you to that point and yeah he was 
accused, but he makes it clear that he was mm-hmm. acquitted, you know. So that's that's an important element. We don't know the details until Jack Warden tells Laura later. Uh, but then we have, then we meet the judge, and the judge is clearly Another person they biased. fucking hate. <laughs> He's completely biased. He's going He's so into biased. this ready to rule in favor of Con Cannon. The first every meeting, time. he's like, so uh, did you come to a settlement? Yeah, are we done? Nope. <laughs> well, uh, Con Cannon says, you know, the offer still stands, but when I walk out this door, it will be withdrawn. And that scene where the judge goes into the court after this whole meeting because he has another case or whatever, and then James Mason's character uh, leaves, they just show that overhead shot of... Newman again slumped in his chair and he just goes dumb 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 yeah. dumb dumb, yeah. dumb that's such a good moment <laughs> it is so great cuz so you can good. tell he's like he's trying to to stand his ground with those with those two guys but like when he really thinks about it he's like oh fuck <laughs> yeah I, and then you know the after that there's the jury selection they they don't show a lot of the jury selection but there's a little bit of it and then he's at the end of that session they he goes out into the lobby and the i guess brother-in-law of the client just attacks him for finding when he finds out that he didn't take the settlement and he again he gets accused of you know you guys are all the same you're all going to tell me that we got this covered and it's going to work out and then it doesn't you say oh well we did our best and you know what he's right he nails him yeah. and he's absolutely right about it all. If he fails, he's not yeah, going to take any of the blame. Yeah, I thought that was a blame. great moment with the the brother-in-law because just because they you can see the the strain that it's caused. You know this. Uh, what's her What's her name? The woman in the coma. Um, I'm sorry, I, I can't remember. remember right now. But you can just see the the strain that it's caused their family. Like they, it's just with any kind of anytime something happens to your family, like you want to do the best for them. But there comes a point where you know you just you can't do it all. And you can see that, like, he, he wants to take his, he wants to make sure that she's taken care of, obviously, in the hospital, but he also wants to do right by his wife, who's obviously mm-hmm. been going through a lot having, you know, to deal with this stuff from her sister. And that's, that's all they wanted. They just wanted the money and to go. That's why he gets so mad at, at uh, Galvin. And, exactly. and he tries to convince him, like, well, we could probably get more money if we mm-hmm. go to trial. And he's like, but you're still going to be putting us through you know, something that could be stretched out like longer and longer and longer. And we just want to, you know, be happy again with our lives, which it's not, it's not unfeeling towards the woman who's in a coma. It's just, mm. I mean, it puts, it's that kind of thing can put pressure and strain on anybody. It's hard. It's basically... hard to know what the right thing to do is. He's basically saying we don't really it's need not, yeah, more I don't money. know what I would, I don't know what I would do in that situation, you know, cause you want to take care of your family, but mm-hmm. God, that's hard. It really is. And then we find out that uh, the Dr. Gruber, who we met at earlier in the film, that said, you know, the doctors killed her and I'm going to testify against them. The one that should have made it like a slam dunk case for Galvin. Yeah. He fucking he disappears. Backs, he backs out. He's more or less bought off yeah, or, oh yeah. uh, by, I don't know if it's the church exactly or if it's by Con Cannon's group or, or, or what. together? I don't know. Oh yeah, they're they're all kind of in cahoots. Even and though you can together. see, there's moments um, with the bishop where he's not entirely, yes. you know, like wanting to throw this family under the bus. You know, like he he does 
You know what I mean? This movie is not anti-Catholic. It's not anti-hospital. No. It's not any of that. It's just anti-fucking people over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And the the way that it's all dealt with is showing that people are fallible and human. And sometimes they make mistakes. And sometimes they try and cover their ass when they make mistakes. And sometimes mistakes can cost people their lives and we need to be honest about those things you know i think that's a big element of that which maybe makes this movie prescient to well i mean it's probably kind of evergreen prescient because this stuff always happens and has always happened since long before 1982 or or you know the dawn of humanity but just that frankly. thing where you will be more respected and people will understand what happened if you admit to the mistake right away and not try to cover it up and you try to cover something up that makes it 10 times worse for everybody and everybody can see it and uh, you just always yeah. wonder why people even bother like trying to cover it up it's like it's gonna get found out and mm-hmm. it's even worse mm-hmm. for you afterwards so absolutely just admit it oh yeah and there's the there's then we see you know the judge also denies him the extension to try and get a new witness lined up and all sorts of things like that it's just kind of clear that the judge is in the pocket of con Cannon too or at least biased towards his he should have asked point for a new judge <laughs> well he asks for a mistrial but you can report a judge for having bias yeah well, here is where, you know, we also find out, this is where Mickey tells Laura about what happened to Frank at his old firm, uh, about how the firm itself actually bribed a juror and then blamed it yeah. on him. And he was on the verge of being disbarred. He got fired, obviously. His whole career was essentially ruined by this accusation that occurred. Uh, he hit the bottle after that pretty hard and has barely worked in the three or four years since that occurred. There's that scene right after that where he's just in desperation. He's calling the archdiocese again and he's saying, I I'll take the, I'll take the settlement. And it's shot from this really, really low angle. Every time there's like this major disappointment, it seems like it's shot from this really, really low angle. Instead of making him look small, you know how normally it would be sort of like overhead. It's not. It's 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 always it's shot from this low low angle that makes him look kind of big in the frame somehow. It's weird, and it's, it seems counterintuitive, but it's really effective and it works for me. And again, it's not in any way that showy because Sidney Lumet yeah. didn't do showy. He just told stories. And then we have that scene with Con Cannon coaching <laughs> his witness, which is just like you know, like he's an acting coach. Keep your keep your answers down to three words, yes. and and you know, just and saying, don't use technical jargon. Just say she threw up in the mask. Yeah. You know, just you know, and the, the, there's the team of lawyers that are sitting as though they're in a jury box, and yeah. everything about it is just slimy and. <laughs> <laughs> but so but you know this is what happens. This is and at the same time you get why they do it. You know, you want a, a witness to be effective in your case. So right. you know I, it's not necessarily slimy. It just feels gross the way right. he's doing it, <laughs> and he's kind of constantly interrupting him and 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 directing him. You know, it's a very much a director 
working with a with an actor and in right. shaping a performance. Yeah, because he gets him to that point where he gets really passionate and agitated, and he's like, "Okay, good. That's where I wanted you to go. Now tell us the story." Yeah. So you can see how it's kind of. It's kind of an awesome scene, to be honest. It's it really well crafted scene, and and it makes you dislike the character more. <laughs> At the you same can tell time, how he's you... really good, and how, how he how he's like such a big shot lawyer because he focuses on these things, and that's probably how he wins. And again, it's a move. It's about details. And then we get the our new witness, uh, Don uh, Doctor Thompson. Then in the. I love this part and it it's almost feels like a loose end, but, but it's such a key scene is where he actually goes the to nurse the nurse's house. The nurse that was house. in the operating room, but won't testify. Yeah. The, the one that won't testify, all the others yeah. are willing to testify, but she is not. He's saying, I can subpoena you, you know? And he says, well, wait. And he says, wait till I get you up on the stand. And he says, you better goddamn do it then. You know, it's like, she's daring him to do it. Because she'll tell, like <laughs> she'll tell, and because she knows something's up, she doesn't end up testifying because uh, there's another witness that is probably expected to be more effective yeah. uh, that they discover. But it takes why a little do you bit think she doesn't want to testify though? Because he's obviously showing passion for the case. Because that's where that's where she calls him a horror. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it ties into what um, the other Caitlin uh, Costello, the other the nurse who actually does testify, mm. says That's she'd true. be fired. Yeah. She would, and you know, she would never be able to work in that sure. profession again. I just want them to have the same kind of passion and to stand up against these guys. But yeah, probably there's an wouldn't undercurrent. Be good for them. There's the undercurrent uh, in a couple of places in this movie of the misogynistic nature of these nurses working with doctors. It's not a centerpiece of the film, but it's an important element, uh, especially when, when we get into the testimony of, of the other, of the admitting nurse. I think it's key, but I mean, that that's a little bit ways more into the movie. That's in the actual, when the trial actually started, we haven't even yeah. started the trial yet. And oh, so much okay. of this, so much of this movie <laughs> is sure. not yeah. the trial. I thought that was interesting. I thought there would be a mm. lot more of the actual trial, but there yeah. is a, the sense. Yeah. yeah. Of nurses being less than doctors. Yeah. Which is totally not true. I know. At all. God. I know the, the, the work that nurses do is so important and they do the real they do the hard work. work, yeah. You know, of it of healthcare and doctors do hard work too. I'm not I'm not disparaging <laughs> doctors, but um, but nurses do a lot of work that a lot of the unsung doctors, work. Doctors don't want to do. <laughs> Let's right. face it. You a know, a lot of the unsung work. Uh huh. Uh huh. There's this next scene, which is I think the the scene where I say this is why Charlotte Rampling's in the movie, and that's where he walks in to her room and he says. We're going to lose. And I think it's my fault. Uh, I said, there's no point. It's over. She says, I thought it wasn't over until the jury came in. (laughs) And she says, who who told you that? You did. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And then, um, and and she just lays in him. Says, you want some sympathy from me, but you won't get it. Uh, I'm not your mother telling you you have a fever and you don't have to go back to school. He goes, and he just has a panic attack. And he goes into the bathroom and he's, and, and she's like, She's trying to talk to him and he's like, and he doesn't yell at her. He just says, please don't, please, please don't, don't pressure me. Cause he knows, I think he is going to 
blow up at her if he doesn't but he get need, it he really control. needed that from he her, does i think absolutely and i wanted to talk to you i thought maybe you maybe could get some sympathy he came to the wrong place but what makes you so tough maybe i'll tell you that later you're gonna be later not if you don't grow up you're, you're like a kid you're you're coming in here like it's like it's Sunday night. You want me to say you have a fever so you don't have to go back to school. Why won't you understand? I do understand, Frank. Believe me, I do. You say, you say you're going to lose. Is it my fault? Listen, the damn case doesn't start before tomorrow and already it's over for you. It is over. You want to be a failure? Then do it someplace else. I can't invest in failure, Frank, anymore. I can't. Stop whining that you're going to lose. Do the job. Get it done. Do what you know is going to be right. That's what he's. That's what she's basically telling him. Yeah, and basically saying, "Who knows? Maybe you will win. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you don't know that you'll lose." So then the trial begins. Then we have this this whole thing with the judge. The fucking judge. The judge (laughs) asking question to the witness. Uh. Oh my gosh! And this is and this is. If you're going to try my case for me, I wish you wouldn't lose I know. it. Oh, that is the best line. <laughs> I don't know how anybody in the courtroom could see that and not see that the judge is like so biased. He should not even be trying this case. They so, uh, both the lawyer, uh, Concanon, I should say, and, and the judge just sort of pick apart this new witness they found. Because, you know, he, he first thing that Concanon asks him is... Yeah, he asks the doctors, are you being paid to be here? It's like, yes, I am. Just and like so you are, you. yeah. Yeah, I kind of love that moment. <laughs> That's a good line, too, yeah. And they ask him, are you board certified? He says, no, in the state of Nor- New York, you don't have to be. And he says, well, we're not in New York, we're in Massachusetts. You know, and just this this <laughs> picking apart of his credibility. And even if a lawyer says something, even if the other lawyer of Jackson says it will be stricken from the record. You can't strike it you from your memory. You that. can't unhear something. They all know what they're doing. Okay. They all know that, that, that if they ask a question, they know if it's going to be objected mm-hmm. to, but it's planting the seed. And that's a lot of what's going on between Ken uh, Cannon and, and Galvin in this movie. So that whole bias judge element is just like, it just, pisses me off during so much of the movie but <laughs> i watched a little making of making of documentary on the blu-ray and the writer of the novel said who was a lawyer said you know bias judge bias judges happen you know it's real and you got to deal with it so he brought in a lot of these things i think to some extent from his own experience i mean i don't think he was frank galvin uh you know kind of person, but maybe he knew someone who was um, like that, which I would have no doubt (laughs) that 
it's probably an amalgamation of sure. various real people. But the doctor really holds test, his own. The doctor holds though. his own, and he, that. even though, and he he kind of gets picked apart, and again, they show him from that from that low angle. Like from the point of view of, of where the yeah. judge is sitting shot there yeah. when he's asking him the questions he's like well with that very little information that you're giving me in the question you know like mm-hmm. yes i have to answer it this way but he's very convincing that he kind of means the opposite of what he's yeah. saying you know yeah and okay so again we have the defeated moments the low angle defeated moments after the other doctor testifies that she Which was never heard before exactly complete like, surprise to them and it's like, oh, shit, you know? And they show that low angle again. And you have the whole thing where Mickey says, you know, you'll maybe you'll lose this one. There'll be other cases. And then he just repeats that mantra. There are no other cases. This is the case. Just over and over and over again. And it's, it's like, this is my last chance. Mm-hmm. If I don't get this, I'm lost. I'm done. I'll probably drink myself to death. I, I really think that's Probably, what yeah. he's saying. Oh, I do too. And and he'll just give up oh, yeah. completely after this. And then, God damn it, we have that next scene where we show Con Cannon giving that's this speech. Such a brilliant way to do that, though. It that is. Scene. It isn't. It is just. It just focuses on Con Cannon, and he's saying, "I tried a case and I lost, <laughs> and my my boss, whatever, asked me." how I, how it went. And I said, I tried my best. And he said, you're not paid to try your best. You're paid to win. And winning pays for this office. <laughs> winning pays for this whiskey. Winning pays for our charitable work, uh, our pro bono shut work up, whatever. and all this stuff. <laughs> and then he hand, then he pours the two glasses of whiskey and he writes a check and he hands the glass <laughs> to Laura. To Laura! And I I had completely forgotten about that. And I was just like, what? (laughs) And and so the question, (laughs) so, so she had been a partner in this firm, but there's an implication. Is she uh, leaking information to the enemy here? You know, is is that what she's doing or what? You know, there's, there's, it's not, she's getting mm -hmm. paid to give, you know, his, his trial strategy to Cannon. Exactly. And it's just, it's, it's the moment that just makes you go, oh, ah. This is the last but thing I, that he needs. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, oh, jeez. And then, okay, so in the meantime, so we, we get this, this sort of kick between the eyes revelation of the movie. And he, uh, Frank has, wa- has gone off to New York to track down this woman named Caitlin Costello, who has... Uh, yeah, the, the admitting yeah. nurse. She was who, the admitting who made the, nurse. Yeah, yeah. okay, because the big thing in, in the case about why the woman had this reaction to the anesthetic was what time mm-hmm. she ate. She last exactly. ate before she got into the hospital. And mm-hmm. it was, um, they say it was nine hours. nine hours. Yeah, they say it was nine hours. Um, because if you have eaten in more than... Uh, nine hours they they wouldn't give you a certain anesthetic uh, yeah. less than nine hours I should say they wouldn't give you a certain anesthetic because it could cause you to throw up in your mask and um, and cause you know choking on vomit which is I know lovely but that's that's the case that's the that's, what that's what's going on here um, and so I, the the thing where they're tracking her down they're both on the phone 
you know, both Jack Warden and Paul Newman are on the names. phone. Then so. using different names and all this stuff. And then, and then Laura's just saying, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. And it's like later, huh? Okay. You know, go, mm-hmm. go get some cigarettes, you know? And it's just like, <laughs> you know, um, because if they had listened, so it feels like so much could be avoided. Then while Newman is off in New York tracking this woman down, Mickey finds the check still, yeah. still not cashed, you know, sure. in, in, in her purse, he's kind of just sees it. Mickey flies to New York to meet him and they just have that, that oh, overhead, overhead shot. Sorry. You don't hear anything don't, they're saying. It's just no. traffic noise. And, and you know, everything that's being said. And that's just a great scene. <laughs> and, <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, he uh, has goes a back and... slightly um, problematic reaction to this revelation. <laughs> it is. This is the moment there where it's like, okay, you kind of get it, I know, but like, you're like, I don't entirely hate him, but also like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he see because Laura agrees to meet him. I think at the uh, pub or wherever, and he sees her and. He straight punches her in the face. She, yeah, he, you're right. It's not, it's not a slap. It's, it's a punch. He's, he, 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 her mouth starts bleeding. She hits to the floor. Um, They're, they're gonna, they're gonna arrest Frank. uh, But she says no, because I think she does get it. Uh, It's horrible as this act is. It's sort of a uh, symbolic reaction in a way. Like, I probably shouldn't have actually punched her in the face. No. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> like you said, like she she gets that she like, I don't want to say that she deserved it, but she deserved she, something for her betrayal. She deserved. She, yeah. Yeah. Betraying him was n- not the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she <laughs> deserved she to deserve be laid to get out. In the face. But you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. And I think that is I think we as I think the movie knows that, too. Right. I mean, the movie's not advocating no. Frank's action. Uh <laughs> So that's something to definitely keep in mind. Uh, when it's hard to talk movie. about this scene. It really is. And, but it's, you can't not talk about it either. It's right. kind of, it's a pretty key moment. Cause, and that sort of trajects us toward the ending where we have, I guess the really only dramatic courtroom scene is, yeah, well, not the summation. It's, it's oh, the, the nurse. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the nurse. So the admitting nurse testifies and, she says that she was told to change the one hour since eating because the when she when this woman was admitted, uh, she said she had a meal within an hour of coming to the hospital, and she wrote down a one. Yep. And the doctor told her to change it to a nine. And and when she says, "I kept a copy." You see that Concanon is visibly oh, yeah. shaken. The first time he has, he has been completely unflappable every moment in this film. But at that moment, he's like, "Good God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this 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 could be it." But it's also and, another. Um, that's another thing with covering up your mistakes again because the the doctor. It wasn't like he was. He wrote, told her to wrote that down to cover his tracks. That because of what happened to this woman, he never even looked at the meeting, admitting form to begin with. So exactly. he's like double covering up his mistakes. He is, and he says in her testimony at the end, she says, and "This is sort of the dramatic stuff. Oh, this I is love this, this is part. Oh, it's the, so sad. 
yeah, the really the only part where it where it where there's, you know, like raised voices and, you know, the sort of things you picture in a courtroom drama happening is when she says he never looked at the admittance form, told me to change the form or he'd fire me. Who were these men? Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a nurse. That got me that so is, bad. Ugh. That is just so powerful. And it just is. like we were talking, then that's that sort of the misogyny of the job and yeah. why the other nurse refuses to talk, I think. She saw what went down. Mm-hmm. She knows that the doctor screwed up. But she is obviously in an important role as a, a, a head nurse, but not as and big for as her, the doctors. Not as big as the doctors. If she were to lose her position, it would be a big blow to her. She probably wouldn't be able to survive. Because I mean, it's clear she doesn't make much of more than a meager living when you see her apartment. Anyway, and then you so so this moment is so heartbreaking because my gosh, you're all like, they got it, they got it, they're gonna win, they're gonna win, they're gonna win, and then. There's some technicality that they find in a case. Concanon says you cannot admit as evidence a photocopy that could be tampered with over the original. Yes. But I'm thinking to myself, can't the original the same... be tampered with more yeah, right. than, than the copy? <laughs> but it's also the same thing you know? of like um, the jury can't unhear any of that. Exactly. Too. But they disallow her testimony, and that's that's the ruling. You know that that's where you have objection, and the judge says, judge says overruled. And he says exception. exception. <laughs> you know, and it's like well noted. You know, but, but at the same time, it's anything. the rule that they can't take into account her testimony, but they they will will. <laughs> yeah, they cl- and they and they clearly they, do they clearly do that's exactly what i was going to say they yeah the, it, when the verdict comes down they clearly do uh but then we have a, a kind of nice little scene where the archbishop is asked mm-hmm. asks well do you believe her you know to sort of his uh his i don't know who they are exactly his assistants his yeah. lawyers mm-hmm. his whomever they are that's where you can kind of get that the the bishop is not as bad you know no. as Cuckannon and his lawyers that he's He's got a little bit of a heart. He's he's got a heart. Yeah, he's got a heart. I think I think he's I think he's essentially a good man trying to do the right thing, right. but uh, doesn't have all the information, you know, available to him either. So, I that's one of the things about him. I don't think anyone in this movie is necessarily a hundred percent bad or a hundred percent good, which is what makes it real. That summation yeah. scene. Uh, he has the prepared remarks and he's sitting slumped in his chair, just kind of stands up. He doesn't like dramatically crumple it up, but he sort of half folds it, half sort of crumples it and just sort of tosses it on his table there and walks over to the jury and he just gives this beautiful speech. And I think we should just drop in the speech here. Mr. Galvin, summation. You know, so much of the time we're just lost. I say, please, God, tell us what is right. Tell us what is true. I mean, there is no justice. The, the rich win, the poor are powerless. We become tired of hearing people lie. 
and after a time we become dead. A little dead. We think of ourselves as victims. And we become victims. We become... We become weak. We doubt ourselves, we doubt our beliefs. We doubt our institutions. And we doubt the law. But today you are the law. You are the law. Not some book, not the lawyers, not a, a marble statue or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are, they are in fact a prayer. I mean, a fervent and a frightened prayer. In my religion, they say, act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you. If. If we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. I believe there is justice in our hearts. Um, it's just so perfect because it doesn't really have anything to do with the case. You know, it's not specifics about the case. It's specifics about doing what's right. Yeah. It's, basically. it's a speech that in the wrong hands could be corny. Mm -hmm. uh, but the way Newman performs it and the way Lumet shoots it, it's with such earnestness and also the way that Mamet writes it, you know, I think all of those things work together. So it's just proof of the collaborative nature of making a movie right there is that yeah. these these elements just come together in a simple, beautiful, moving moment. And it's not like a long or like super impassioned speech. Like he doesn't like raise his voice or do a lot of gestures or whatever. You can tell it's purely coming yeah. from the heart and yes yeah, so it's so well written like my favorite line it's hard yeah. to pick like i love the whole thing but like my favorite thing was when he says we become tired of hearing people lie yeah. which i think was like a, it's a big part of the, what this movie is and i thought that was just such a perfect line he's like yeah and he wraps it up you know this third this <laughs> so thoroughly <goddamn> <laughs> pessimistic man ends it with this wraps the whole thing up with that line of just simple human decency where he says, I believe there is justice in our hearts. <laughs> Some, something about that perfect. is undeniably perfect. Yeah, perfect is the perfect word. And then the verdict comes in and it's not a huge moment. It's quiet. Uh, so this, I love the way they, he did there's this. There's no music. There's no... This was such a perfect there's no moment. There's no cheering. Uh, it's just quiet and straightforward. They just deliver it. And then yeah. they say, uh, we do have a question. No, they do that great camera motion where it just, it zooms in on Paul Newman and the crowd, they, uh, I thought that was perfect. Like, like you said, like there's no like outpouring of emotion, like from the courtroom. It's like, there's not even any music mm. in this scene. It's just, we find in favor of the plaintiff and he, he the look on his face. He's like, what? Yeah. Really? 
Yeah. And it's just such a great moment. Like he's, he's one. It's just simple and elegant and sort of perfectly done. And the ending, good Lord, is just. Oh, and like you were about to say with the, with the jurors when they asked. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. You know, can we give them more can money? Can we, can we yeah. give them more than they originally asked for? Uh, is kind of a wonderful moment too. And it's not, again, it's not big fanfare. It's just is. Uh, but you know, the ending just kind of kills me of this movie where he's sitting in his office after having won this victory and you see uh, Laura with the phone and she's just letting it ring and ring and ring and ring. And then it cuts to Newman in his office and he's just letting it ring and ring and ring and ring and ring. And that's where the movie ends without this sort of reconciliation between the two. And it's, again, it's kind of the perfect ending because even with this great victory, he is not entirely victorious. And you kind of see her acting like him in a way in that. She looks numb. She's she's drunk. She looks completely numb to me because I think a part of her feels like maybe she sold her soul. Yeah, like they kind um, yeah. of switched roles almost by the end where she's kind of drinking away her sorrows, you know, for what she did. It, yeah, it does kind of suck that um, there's no reconciliation, but um, it's kind of, I, I, I still kind of like that because the movie is more just about that this is his personal yes. victory. I think it would be... That maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't need the affirmation of another person yeah. as long as he has it within himself that he did the I right thing. I think the movie would be dishonest if it ended any other way. Mm-hmm. If it ended with them like yeah, kissing this big and grand yeah. moment at yeah, the end. Totally. I don't think that would be true to the film or the story that they're telling or the characters. Um, so I, I, I find this movie, like I said, to be just kind of an understated masterpiece. And I liked it more on this second viewing than I did on the first. And I loved it quite a bit on the first. So what it is exactly is, again, that like we've discussed before, it's it's a sense of gut feeling. You know, how do my personal experiences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, inform how I watch a movie and how I react to a movie? And for me, this one, I don't even know where it hits in my soul, but it sure does. Yeah, yeah. talking about it more makes me love it even yeah. more. I think because mm-hmm. I wasn't—I thought it was a great movie, but it wasn't—it wasn't one that like certain parts really got to me. But like just now, kind of discussing it and thinking about the overall, like what the movie really means. Like, yeah, this is pretty yeah. brilliant. I'm—I'm yeah. <laughs> so I'm a huge fan of Sidney Lumet, so I'm so glad to be able to revisit his work yeah. anytime I can because. I have several films uh, of his that I haven't seen yet that I'm very excited. I own a few that I haven't seen yet uh, that I'm very excited to to watch. And there's just nothing that I've seen with the possible exception of The Wiz that I haven't that I haven't (laughs) cared for. It's got some moments of brilliance, but in other ways, it's like Sidney Lumet just does better with movies that are about. I mean, he, most of his movies, let's face it, they're about men who are going up against a system that is trying mm-hmm. to destroy them. So much of it, I mean, 12 Angry Men has got elements of that, and The Pawnbroker, and the Hill. Uh, Serpico, definitely, Dog Day Afternoon, all these movies that are so good, and I'm glad that we're going to be talking about another of these before too long. Um, yeah, we are. 
because oh just wonderful filmmaking and a voice that i miss and i love love that he worked so constantly from his first movie in 19, in the 1950s up until his last until till the devil knows you're dead is a great movie to end on i it's it's really and it feels like the movie of a young man. I, I don't mean to sound disparaging of, of older filmmakers, but it, but it has the energy <laughs> of a young man uh, making that movie. And uh, I even kind of like, you know, movies, another courtroom movie he did called Find Me Guilty with Vin Diesel was actually, I thought, pretty good. Um, so <laughs> the, guy, the guy was just an endless talent who tried all sorts of different things. And I'm so glad we have just such a massive Absolutely. body of work from one of the great, great film craftsmen ever seems like he's going to be the the director of our show i know because <laughs> we we've got this is the second and we've got we're a gonna third do plan, three movies so. we do have yeah. a third one coming up <laughs> but i love it me too it's me perfect. too all right let's let's shift gears all right again this is another movie where like i don't even know where to begin uh, we're talking about anatomy of a murder now uh from 1959 directed by otto preminger and okay i gotta say this right off the bat um this is a movie where, um, as the horny bisexual of the room, this is a movie where I would not kick any of the main cast members out of bed. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh, we're talking about a young George Ooh, C. Scott, yeah. Jimmy Stewart, a young mm-hmm. Ben Gazzara, who is, I've always yeah. loved him, but oh, damn, in this time, he's just fine. And probably more than any of them else, Lee Rimmick. Yeah. <laughs> is freaking gorgeous she she is i mean i i was only familiar with her from the omen for so long you know where she's she's still she's still you know uh handsome woman as they say uh by the time she makes that movie whatever but she's uh she's just a knockout here i mean it's just uh she did the face a face in the crowd the year before so damn good I just had another idea for another double we could do, a face in the crowd and another Sydney Lumet movie. Network. Oh. <laughs> Media. Mm. Media. That's tempting. That yeah. is very tempting. <laughs> That's a dark double feature. That would be, yeah. Okay, but uh, Anatomy of Murder is based on a 1958 novel of the same name, which um, kind mm-hmm. of another connective tissue between our two movies, both based on books that were written by... Um, he well he was a he was a Supreme Court justice when he wrote the book, but it was kind of based on a case from 1952 mm-hmm. that he was the defense attorney on, which is pretty much what happened in his real case is what happens yeah. in the movie. I honestly don't know the extent of the reality of the verdict story. I don't know how true to life the case was, but it actually feels like a pretty true to life case, to be honest. So I, but I, really? I have no idea for sure what level of reality is in that case. But it's interesting to know this is based on an actual situation. Yeah, yeah. The actual case is is basically what happened. A guy um, shot another guy because he thought he raped his mm-hmm. wife, and then um, actually the same thing happened to the defense attorney. Like they left without paying him (laughs) (laughs) but just like some other interesting things about this uh the judge in this movie uh joseph welch is actually a real lawyer a very kind of famous lawyer from the mccarthy hearings interesting yeah which i thought was super interesting because he's a really he's kind of a quirky little judge and i love him in this movie very and that 
that sort of enlightens me because his performance stands out as a little odd to me. It's it's not mm-hmm. it's not bad, it but does. it's it's different. It's a little weird, you know, uh, compared. But I mean, when you're up against <laughs> Jimmy Stewart and George C. Scott, uh, you know, it's going to come off different. I imagine he yeah. was probably intimidated. <laughs> yeah, but he's great. Oh, I love him. So um, we got Jimmy Stewart as the main character, and he um, is kind of a similar character, I would say, to mm-hmm. um, Paul Newman's. Um, he plays uh, Paul Beegler, kind of one of those lone wolf lawyers where he's just got his his office yeah. is in his house and he just kind of he does his own thing he's not like a, a big shot lawyer and he spends a lot of time of, fishing yeah i mean he he spends a lot of time fishing and playing music and he he takes just enough cases for him to live this kind of comfortable life that he has for himself he's like i like to uh play jazz and talk law with my friend Parnell and I, that's all I really yeah, want. And out also of life. not pay his secretary. Right. <laughs> and also not pay his secretary. He needs to pay <laughs> Mayda. That's the only so, bad, it's the only bad thing about so him. so funny though. I love her character. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I do. <laughs> and he's got his own like little quirks about him. He, as he describes himself, like kind of, um, kind of joking, but it's also kind of the truth. He's like, he's just a humble country lawyer but he's that one where he's like he's he's really smart and he's really good at what he does and he, but he doesn't show it as much on the outside as you know the, the team and the prosecution does you know like he during the trial he, he puts together mm-hmm. uh, fishing lures you know while people are giving important testimony about his case yeah. but he's always right on it as soon as it's his his time to question somebody so and it's another this is another one where it's a very different kind of role for for jimmy mm-hmm. stewart like we were talking about yeah. with rope it is it's not the there's no sense of aw shucks about this this is more this is post-war jimmy stewart yeah. this is uh you know late 50s jimmy stewart so what is he doing in this era he's doing vertigo you know he's doing anthony mann westerns he's doing stuff that's really different from what he was you know known for for so long and i think with the um it's it's kind of interesting too. Um, I, I always think about um, Cape Fear for some reason. Like one of my other favorite movies is from '62. Mm-hmm. This is '59. The language in this movie is it's just hard to believe that they could make a movie like this at this time when you have something like in Cape Fear where they they flat out could not say the, even mm-hmm. the word rape in that movie could not imply anything in that movie. But Otto Preminger got away with like because this is really advanced like they say thing you know they have the whole discussion about right. the word panties and they they say words like sperm and spermatogenesis right. and and rape is that over and over again but he got away with it because that is the technical definition of all this stuff that's how you that's how it would actually be said in yep. a courtroom it's still kind of like uh jarring i think in a way hearing jimmy stewart talk about that it stuff, is you know? i think the panties discussion is actually really that's one of my favorite parts you know when they're talking because like can we use another word for this and he says well i learned a french word in the war but it was quite suggestive this is what <laughs> yeah. most french words are i, <laughs> I love that one <laughs> i mean it's not it's not my favorite part of the movie that's not what i mean but i think i think the dialogue is kind of yeah. funny because okay and then he says all right he addresses the courtroom and says we're going to be saying the word panties a lot you know and he's essentially yeah. addressing the audience and he says, "I don't want any snickering yeah. because this is this is the real deal. This is a this is a case of murder, and this is a case where someone's dead, and it could involve someone else going to you yeah. know." It, it, 
I don't really like that part because of what he says. He's like, there's nothing funny about the word panties, you know, when it has to do with you know, the death of one man and the possible incarceration of another. And I was of, like, um, there's also there's also nothing funny about panties when we're talking exactly. about the rape and of And that, that was the one part that just made me go, you could have said one more thing there, Judge. I know, so, exactly. <laughs> but, but I guess for me as a teacher, sometimes you got to discuss things that are going to make the kids right. snicker. Like... Okay, I'm a music teacher, and in dynamic, music sort of applies to this movie too, so I'm not totally going off. But for a really quiet dynamic level, you put two P's on, on the music, so P-P. Okay. <laughs> see, that makes so, me So it's, it's, I kind of got that, when he was, when, when he was sort of addressing the, <laughs> the, court, the lobby and saying, you know, I don't want any snickering here because it's... See, I'm, yeah. I'm totally immature. Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, you, the, the, and the thing that you do to diffuse it is you just sort of hit it head on. It's like you make a joke of it. You say, okay, so if you want your music to be pianissimo, you put a little pee-pee on the music. <laughs> and they'll laugh and you'll, and you'll move on. And it's just sort of... <laughs> so, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm talking second graders here. So uh, I'm not talking about um, adults. <laughs> Yeah. Actual adults, like in this movie. Okay, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, going back. Okay, Jimmy Stewart is Paul Beegler. His secretary, um, Maida, is played by Eve Arden. I love her. Mm -hmm. She's such... She's so perfect for him. You know, can can I jump in? She reminds me a little bit of the... His nurse character in Rear Window. Just sort of that banter they have. Yes. I really... Mm -hmm. Thelma Ritter. I really like that kind of dynamic that Jimmy Stewart has with sort of strong, forceful women like that. He, he plays that so well. They both play it so well, and it's beautifully mm-hmm. done in both those movies. I really latched on to that relationship a lot. Yeah, it's a great relationship where you can see that she's loyal to him, even though, like we said, that you know he doesn't really take a lot of jobs. He doesn't make a lot of money to even pay her a yeah. salary sometimes, but she's never going to leave him. Because she likes you him. You can tell. Not, not, a, not in a... Yeah romantic sense she just thinks she just enjoys him i think she likes being around him and i think he's one of the characters in this movie that you yeah i do want to hang out with this guy i think he's fun he'd be great to hang around and play music with duke ellington wants to play music with him so (laughs) he does and i gotta say right from the beginning this movie has me because right off the top you have saul bass title sequence with uh, music from Duke Ellington, who wrote the score. He didn't write the scores for very many movies, but uh, this is, I think, one of his only feature films that he wrote the music for. And it's such a great score. And it's it's good. A lot of jazz scores of the time were sort of like people who didn't really do jazz pretending to do jazz. This is real jazz score. And it's so good. And it almost doesn't really fit Mm-mm. with the story, but it gives you a sense of place and character. It does. And Otto Preminger did that a couple of times because he also, and in the case of the man with the golden arm, it actually fits because he's, Frank Sinatra plays a jazz drummer. <laughs> so it's it mm-hmm. a little bit more, you know, fits with that. But here it just, the sense of time and place and mood, uh, it works great. And also you have the fact that this is, it gives the vibe of the character because Jimmy Stewart's character is a jazz fan. And that is sort of brought in throughout the movie, you know, from his record collection to him hanging out in the in the, the bars and stuff like yeah. that and just noodling at the piano even uh, in his own home. It's how he 
cracks the case. It's how he gets to the core of things. Uh, he gets in a zone through music that helps him, I think, is an element. And so the soundtrack being what he would be into is really fitting, I think. Yeah. But it's also, it's just not that kind of no, it's not. dramatic, you know, stuff that you would it's usually not. expect it's, from like a big yeah, courtroom drama. Yeah, it's very counter to that. Yeah, it is, it is very, it is very much tied to the character, which I thought was yeah. really good. Okay, and then another important person we have is Arthur mm. O'Connell as Parnell Mar- McCarthy. Yeah. Is this like his older, was he a lawyer? I want to say probably I think he was, was a lawyer yeah. beforehand and he's like an old, his older, um, like alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> Friend, basically. <laughs> he's he's sort of uh, <laughs> ele- shades of Jack Warden's character and shades of Paul Newman's character. Yeah, you know, someone who once was but isn't anymore. You know. Yeah, because you can because um, they say that like one of their favorite things to do is they just like uh-huh. read law books to each other at, at night. So I mean, you could tell he probably had that great mind of a lawyer before, but you know, fell mm-hmm. into drinking and and that's it's a great. Um, I actually feel bad. I never really pay attention to it before, like how much of an arc that he has by the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. Parnell. But, uh, yeah, he's just that one uh, similar thing with uh, Newman's character um, in this big, important murder case of his career. It's just him and Parnell working the case up against George G. Scott as uh, the prosecutor in the case. Uh, Claude Dancer. I love that name so much. <laughs> and the thing is, he's not even the lead lawyer on the case. He's He, no, he was sort of brought just, in um, from the attorney general's in. office, right? But he sort of takes over by the end of the of the trial, you know. Pretty much, we'll get we'll get to George C. Scott. I have some thoughts about that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So the case that um, is brought to him, um, he gets a, uh, Paul gets a phone call from uh, Lee Remick's Laura Mannion. Uh, her husband Frederick Mannion, Manny, uh, played by Ben Gazzara, um, is in jail. Um, and Parnell kind of tells him the story of that um, the. A local, I guess it's like an innkeeper in, he owns a local bar, Barney uh-huh. Quill. Laura says that Barney raped her and that she told her husband, Manny, who went to his, to his bar in front of like all these people and shot him. So there's no question about whether or not he did it. Um, but I think it's really interesting that even with like this kind of open and shut thing, like, you know, we're talking about before, it's an open and shut case. Parnell, like, tells him, tells Paul before he even takes the case, he was like, if that's, if that's her, tell her you're going to take the case. Which I thought was interesting, because it's like, well, then that means that he's probably going to lose. It's it's so open and shut, because there are friggin' mm-hmm. witnesses that he did shoot him. I don't know, maybe he kind of, he sees that uh, whole underlying thing underneath, because um, okay, the thing about this movie, though, is like, okay, that's the story that they mm-hmm. give. This movie is completely ambiguous as to what actually happened yep. that night. And I think that's kind of a great way to um, to kind of talk about it because that'll really get into um, the characters and their interactions and, and how they react to all those different parts is that I think there's four ways. There's four possible... I've really thought about this. There's like four possible scenarios as to what actually yeah. happened that night. Because the movie very much, it puts you in, in the jury seat because we see a lot of the stuff outside of the courtroom you know, with the characters and their interactions, but still not really enough to come to a a definitive conclusion about what really happened. You're still not no. really sure by the end. So you're pretty much getting just these the facts in the case, and you again, you have to make conclusions like a jury does. In that way, it's a little bit like a movie that, that I love. I, I don't think you've seen Rashomon. Which is a movie that has, you know, multiple testimonies of the of a single event, but what really happened is sort of pieced together from these four different witnesses. 
and including one of them is a medium, which is really weird. It's sort of an interesting kind of problem to have. You know, it's like there's our story, but is that ever the whole truth? And I still yeah. don't really know. You know, I, I, could, I can make arguments. Like I said, I have, I have four possible scenarios for what really happened. And I can mm-hmm. make arguments for every single one of them mm-hmm. that they're true. One is that it happened just like Laura and Manny said. Sure. You know, that uh, Barney raped Laura and that stole her husband. He went and shot him. Two is that Laura had sex with Barney and Manny beat her up because of that mm-hmm. and still went and killed Barney just out of yeah. you know, jealousy. Three is that Manny like only thought that they had had sex because um, the, the, her story was that like when he drove her home is when it happened. So it could be like he he saw that he drove her home and just assumed that they had sex, flew into the rage, and he either beat her or he beat right. and raped her himself. Mm-hmm. Manny mm-hmm. did. And then went and killed Barney. Yeah. Four, that Laura was raped by Barney, but Manny didn't believe her still doesn't believe her and beat her up and still kind of went and shot Barney like for having sex with her, even if it was rape. So, yeah. And I could, like I said, there's, you could argue any one of those things could have happened and you don't really know for sure because you're never really given anything. There's lots of clues and there's lots of facts that come up, but they can have very different ways, uh, different outcomes, you know, of what it actually meant in the, terms of what happened that night definitely and I, and i kind of i kind of love that but it's also like super frustrating it's like i just want to know what the but truth the thing is. is i think that's the realism of it though because i mean if you're sitting on a jury you yeah. are putting together pieces of testimony exactly. and you don't you will never a hundred percent be able to know what a hundred percent happened because there are going to be differences in how people recall things in how people share their stories, the way, way they, they act. act. Are, are they are they lying? I don't know. It's, it's all very... That's one of the things that's great about this movie is, even for its time, I mean, it shows that there are difficulties in a justice system because you just never... Because human beings are involved and human beings make mistakes right. and they lie they or whatever and all of and some of those things are possibilities in this movie and it's makes it yeah you're right it makes it frustrating (laughs) but also makes it a more rewarding film ultimately i think because of the ambiguity yeah and i think thinking about those possible scenarios that's what really that's where you really gets into the characters and and their reactions because there are so many different ways you can read everything mm-hmm. that happens, uh, especially I would say between yeah. Laura and Manny. Mm-hmm. It's just, it you can never really read what's going on with the two of them. Cause he, he is very yeah. cold to her through the yeah. whole movie. He never, he hugs her once after she testifies, but he, before that, like he the never where, like, like he touches her, or kisses her. Or she even offers, looks at her. She, she has a lighter out to light a cigarette and he pulls out his own, you know, it, it's just, right. it's a weird relationship, sort of inscrutable relationship. And you don't know what to do with that through the whole movie because you're like, okay, thinking about all these different scenarios, why is he acting that way? Is it because, you know, we see that he has a uh-huh. jealousy streak in regards to his wife. He attacks his cellmate at one point because uh, his cellmate says something ugly. Like, if I had peace like that outside, I'd be worried about what she was uh-huh. doing. And he, like, pushes them up against the, the bars of the jail. So we see the jealousy. Oh, and also um, something that um, Polly, he says something to Polly, too, because 
he says he's going to go like, well, I'm going to go talk to your wife now. And he has a moment like, well, wait, didn't you just talk to her yesterday? Why do you have to go mm-hmm. see her again? You can see the, that jealousy working for, God, a lot of, re- we got to get into like, oh, there's no yeah. reasons. But you can see, um, you can see both ways that he's reacting to the situation. Like either that he doesn't really seem to express any real sympathy towards her if she mm-hmm. was raped even. And you can kind of get that that might be his guilt. Or just the kind of backwards thinking that, you know, a, a guy might have that, you know, that she's now been with somebody else and he can't get that out of his head. You know, maybe that's why he's so cold and uncomfortable towards her. But it could also be that she's lying and he thinks that she cheated on him. He's pissed for that. But he's not, he's shown as a very smart mm-hmm. person in the movie in the way that he kind of manipulates everybody around him. But he's not really smart in the way, in his reactions toward her, which is interesting. Like he can't, like he can't contain his emotions. He doesn't his, have a lot of, yeah. About, yeah, he, about he doesn't her. necessarily have a lot of emotional intelligence, I guess you would say. He's, uh, yeah. This whole idea that he's got the smarts for how to trick yeah, people. This whole idea of being yeah. irresistibly impulsed, you know, that comes up in the movie is something that you could see in this character. You're guilty of murder, premeditated and with vengeance. That's first degree murder in any court of law. Are you telling me to plead guilty? When I advise you to cop out, you'll know. Cop out? Well, that's plead guilty and ask for mercy. Well, if you're not telling me to cop out, what are you telling me to do? I'm not telling you to do anything. I just want you to understand the letter of the law. Go on. Go on with what? Whatever it is you're getting at. You know, you're very bright, Lieutenant. Now, let's see how really bright you can be. Well, I'm working at it. All right, now, because your wife was raped, You'll have a favorable atmosphere in the courtroom. The sympathy will be with you, if all the facts are true. What you need is a legal peg so that the jury can hang up their sympathy on your behalf. You follow me? Mm-hmm. What's your legal excuse, Lieutenant? What's your legal excuse for killing Barney Quill? Uh, not justification, huh? Not justification. Well, what excuses are there? How should I know? You're the one that plugged Quill. I must must have been mad. How's that? I said I must have been mad. Well, bad temper's no excuse. Well, I mean, uh, I, I must have been crazy. Am I getting warmer? Okay, so long, boys. Am I getting warmer? Well, I'll tell you that after I talk to your wife. In the meantime, see if you can remember just how crazy you were. That's mm-hmm. a great moment. When Paul first goes to see him yeah. and asks him, you know, like, so why did this happen? Why did you, what made you kill Barney? And you can see he's like, because Paul is trying to feed him information for like what his defense should be. And he is smart enough. Uh, Manny is smart enough to pick up on that. Mm-hmm. That's what he's doing. And, um, it's just kind of, it's such an interesting interaction because... Neither of them is willing to say it. Yeah. And Paul really doesn't like no. Manny at all. He really d- doesn't want to even take the case. He's like, he's insolent and arrogant, mm-hmm. which he totally is. But I think he can also see how, you know, maybe actually he would be good. 
that he could <laughs> put on this show and possibly win. Yeah. Everyone's got interesting motivations in this movie. They do. Including, I mean, and that's again why, you know, like Jimmy Stewart, I mean, you think of this guy as sort of a so often seen as a pure as the driven snow kind of character. And here, you know, his motivations are questionable, you know, Um, not maybe as overtly, but there's a little bit of, is this his own ego a little bit taking this case? Mm -hmm. At first, I think, but what I really like about his character is that I think that that is the case at first, but you can, I think you can see as the movie goes on that he really he start. He really does yeah. believe their oh, yeah, initial I think so. story, I think so too. and he he wants to keep believing that even if even when all this other stuff keeps coming up and they keep you know throwing mm-hmm. surprises at him. And you, uh, especially I love like when he's uh, talking to Manny on the stand at the end. You can you can just see it in his face. He's like, "Tell me, like you didn't really say that." And he was talking about when his cellmate testifies. Right. You know, you can tell that he really he really believes their story that this is what happened, even though it could completely be a lie and they're they're both playing him so i don't think his intentions are oh no 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 evil, that, that's not what really i mean doesn't. i'm not saying evil no. i'm saying he might have just a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of ego involved at first at least um you know and For sure and he's he does gotta get paid so uh, oh, okay, I, I, I don't know where to yeah, go from I, here I, I, this this is <laughs> i have a feeling this conversation is going to be all over the place uh, that i think the, all over the for, place. for me i think the movie where it sort of goes beyond setting up our characters is when he has that meeting with Laura in his house uh, and she sort of tells the whole story and Mm -hmm. there's a, you know, the dog is there and the beer and (laughs) all all those little (laughs) nice touches. But then the comments about how she dresses and were you dressed like this? Were you, you know, you know what I'm, you know, I'm probably know where I'm going with it. You know, it's just, and some of those sorts of things that he brings up and you feel a little gross about. Yeah. So this is kind of the main thing yeah. that I really wanted to talk about with this movie is that it's a really important um, comment yeah, on, on rape culture huge. And, vic- mm-hmm. and victim blaming. Um, and it's just, it's so weird to me. Like I, I just think about this, it's from 1959, you know, you have no idea what it was actually like back then, but um, it's still not so great now. So you can imagine that, yeah. It was even worse in terms of a victim blaming, especially. And okay, I will honestly admit because I saw this movie. I don't remember when, but I think I was in high school, and so I not really thinking about this stuff in, in that time of my life. I will admit to some problematic and dangerous ways uh-huh. of thinking in terms of Laura yeah. Mania's character because she does not quote unquote act like a rape victim. No, she doesn't in this movie. That's yeah, a horrible I, I, I thing to say. That's completely not true. Because she spends a lot of her time, you know, going out to places and, you know, and uh, all these <laughs> right. sort, and sort of snuggling up with other guys in the bars and things like that. Uh, and it's one of those things where you, it's hard to watch it in context now, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't feel like I really have much room to talk on it. To be honest, perfectly honest with you. Well, I don't. I don't know exactly what to say. I. I don't. I think it's just interesting that her character uh-huh. is portrayed is. in that way in this time, as it could be. Like I imagine, the auto is probably 
hip to um, like as, using this as a comment on, on rape culture and yeah. victim blaming because it's just it's all over the place. For one thing, obviously, there is no right way to no, act of after not. you've experienced sexual yeah. violence of that. But there is a right way to act in the public's mm-hmm. mind for it to be easier for them to believe yeah. somebody that unfortunately that's again that is totally wrong completely damaging way of thinking but honestly that's that's the way so it is so when yeah cuz cuz <laughs> unfortunately that, okay so the scene uh, we're talking about the same scene i think is when well even when you yeah. first see her they make it mm-hmm. it's a big show of like yeah well how she's in that dressed. scene where where they're in the house together and he asks her you know were you dressed like that and her response is, well, I know how men look at me. He yeah. says, I know you're interested, but I also know you're not dangerous. And, and, and he's, he's just like totally thrown by that. And that, that scene, that yeah. moment is just like, uh, uh, he doesn't know what to say. And th- that's like the only moment in the movie where I think he doesn't re he really doesn't know what to say. Cause he's, I think realizing, well, maybe I am, but he, I'm not sure he's even sure if he's interested, you know, I admit she does kind of uh-huh. throw you off. Like I said, there's no, there's no right way to act, but she's, she's still, very chill. She's still very, yeah. yeah when the, he first sees her in the office, she's just like chilling mm-hmm. on the, on the couch, laying around, like not again, like she's not acting the way you would expect. And not like you've seen in like you know, stuff like sure. law and order or in any other movies where they're just like and shaking, broken yeah. down and crying. Yeah, no, you don't no. have to act like that. It could. She's still the same person that she was before, and maybe this is just her way of dealing with it. Maybe it hasn't right. hit her yet, and maybe this is her way. But maybe I would say another thing is like that. This could be her way of dealing with it to not to, not to not believe her. But if she really was raped, mm. because we don't know for sure exactly mm. what happened in the movie, it could be the thing where she's trying to make everyone else around her uncomfortable. Very much. So yeah. as to not put herself in the center. And that's why she's she's acting the way she is. Because she's still mm-hmm. a very sexual person. Like she probably yeah. was before. And she comes on to Paul in a way. Like in, in, in little ways. Where she's like, you're tall. Yeah, there, I love there that. Are, <laughs> when they, there's when a, they there's definitely a, a, a subtle flirting going on. <clears throat> yeah. from, from her to him. But that could just be the... The way she yeah. is. And there's nothing wrong with harmless oh, no, flirting no, with not. somebody else, and obviously. That could just be yeah. the way she was and before. And, she, and like she says when they're talking about the way she dresses, like, um, she's a young, mm-hmm. beautiful yep. woman with a great body. Like, why the fuck shouldn't she be yeah, allowed to dress like this? Not wear a girdle. And <laughs> show it off. Oh, that's a, well, exactly. The yeah. thing <laughs> is, when, when he uh, sort of confronts her at the jazz club, and takes her outside mm. and says, okay, from now on, while while your hu- husband is on trial, you're going to be the doting housewife. You're going to wear glasses and you're going to wear a girdle and you're going to wear a nice skirt and s- flat shoes and all these things. That's the image we're going to, we have to portray. To make mm. her to be the perfect rape victim, which there isn't. Right. And it, <laughs> but that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, it, it, It's true. And she is savvy enough. I think to understand that she has to play the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it is unfortunate, but, but there is that element in this. So, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I, I feel horribly unqualified on what to say on a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, so don't cancel me if I said anything insensitive, <laughs> it's not my intention. No. I obviously have strong feelings about, uh, rape and sexual assault. I think I've, 
I've uh, yeah, yeah, me too. I, I've, I've made that clear <laughs> to you uh, off mic before. My yeah. sort of uh, <laughs> connections <laughs> with with those sorts of not personally, but you know, indirectly, and it's it's really tough subject for me. So I, yeah, I, oh, I know, I know, yeah. I know. Um, <laughs> so. But so I, I feel like I sort of stumble over some of this conversation. Oh, and, it's not easy to no. talk about, but yeah. I, I understand. But I, that's why I kind of like this movie because it's it is commenting on these things in a very uncomfortable mm-hmm. way sometimes because it does make you not believe her yeah. most of the time because of the, the way she acts. But that's also important to see. It's like none of the things that she does means that she right. wasn't raped. And the thing is, I none of that means, none of that has anything to do with what actually happened mm-hmm. that night. And that's, that's what people right. need to see. And even though like, they, Oh God, I hate that part where, um, dancer is, um, got Al Paquette's on the stand. Yeah. He was, um, another guy that works at the bar where Barney was okay, killed. Yeah. He saw the killing and dancer is, is asking him about how Laura was acting that right. night. And how because she, she's wearing you know she's wearing like a wool suit with a hat and the glasses in the courtroom and he's like well is this what she looked like that night and they're discussing how she was acting like a couple of bros in a really shitty way it's like oh she was like playing pinball and she was like kind of swinging mm-hmm. her hips and it's like well was she doing it in a very like enticing way it's like was she asking right. for it uh-huh. basically is yeah. what they're both saying and it's so fucking gross but what I love about that scene too is that because uh, Paquette is kind of going along with it, he's like, "Yeah, she was she was drunk and she was like kind of getting the guy's attention." But um, Paul comes in right after that and makes him feel like a complete fucking asshole for yeah. everything he just said when he asked the questions. It's like, so she was drunk and she was you know she was barefoot and cheering and having a good time. So you're just saying that she was happy? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. What's, what's wrong with her being happy and having a good time? And he's like, "Oh." Yeah, mm-hmm. no, you're mm-hmm. right. <laughs> I love that. You can just see yeah. the look on his face. Is like, wow, I'm an yeah, asshole. yeah. It's it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Know exactly what you're talking about. It's such a moment, and there's that balance there. What you're what you've been talking about, where things are presented and then shown in a different light. And then there's also um, the effect of the. There's two things. There's the fact of the lie detector test and the mm-hmm. rosary that comes up uh, later in the story. She she did take um, a lie detector test at her insistence. Basically, the, the lie detector was about whether or not she had been raped, mm-hmm. and she passed the test, which obviously is not admissible in court, but it's just another piece of yeah. information that you get, which, <laughs> again, I hate saying this because I don't ever want to not believe a victim. But, like you can, also, you can see that as she passed the lie detector, that means it really happened. Or she passed the lie detector. Right. She's a good liar. Because the reason... Is, the, I, I hate saying I, I fucking I know, hate saying I know, that I know, so know, much, but... And, and that's part of the reason why this movie works, though, <laughs> frankly, is yeah, be, because I I mean, you, you can... You, like, okay. Eh. We should believe victims, but also, I mean, are, are we going to... Uh, but you, you got to tell the truth, <laughs> you know, too. I mean... But yeah, but this it's case not is just not about just about rape. Yeah. the rape. It's all it's, it's about her yeah. husband killing somebody and him possibly yeah. going to jail and her, you know, trying to save him. I mean, so it's not if it was if it was just about the rape, I would not be right, saying any of this. Right. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, because can reputations be ruined by a lie? Though can lives be ruined by a lie? 
and that's that's one of the things too um so and you know but uh, anyway what i was saying was there's a reason why uh, lie detector tests are inadmissible in court it's because they're unreliable right because you can beat the test there are ways of doing that i mean so i i get it you know but it is it's sort of like this interesting little tidbit to the movie but that's also gonna implant you know some level of doubt or confirmation in the in the in the in the jury's mind yeah uh, you can you can say oh you can't take that into account but uh, come on <laughs> you know <laughs> again yeah you can't uh-huh, unhear uh-huh. something and then also that night also the night of the shooting something that they hold back from Paul at the beginning but comes out later in the trial was that Manny had made her swear uh-huh. on a rosary that Barney had raped her uh, yeah. Which he actually comes up with a very convincing uh, argument when he's on the stand. Like, you know, she very much, you know, believes in this and it's something that's very important to her. And I, I did that to maybe calm her down. But that that gives you the idea that he doesn't yeah. believe her. Mm-hmm. And you just, I don't know. I, that's why I love this movie, but it also, like, pisses me off because I want to know, like, what the actual answer There's is. There's a lot to struggle <laughs> with in this movie, I gotta say. I know there's I, I so gotta much say. to and with. So, uh, well, how did you feel about that scene? That the whole situation? Because they, they say that you know, we thought you know we probably shouldn't tell that story again. Because Paul gets all mad at them. He's like, why didn't you tell me the thing about the rosary? He's like, well, we didn't think that um, anybody else should hear it. Because for that very reason, that it would seem like he didn't believe her. Which, the way he's acting throughout the movie, it really does seem like he doesn't believe her yeah i honestly i don't know i i don't know i I, I don't know what to add i think you've sort of (laughs) sort of put it in there put it in there well i mean it's the whole idea that you you got you can't hold things back you got to tell me what you know you got to tell me your story or or we'll run into surprises and we'll run into Mm -hmm. uh things that are gonna be a problem for you you know is that the, is that the part where he says after this like well, okay when you go up on the stand you're going to tell the truth you're not going to try to lie you're not going to embellish anything you are going to say the yeah. truth because mm-hmm. he still believes them he, he does totally he does and story. i think he's with reason you know it's not no it's, it's not, not an unbelievable all. story um no you know the whole idea of this his whole defense being an insanity defense is got you know its own issues involved you know too because okay uh, let's we know the guy we know he is guilty of actually murdering someone so uh this moment of irresistible impulse how do we know it's not going to result in this happening again you know that's that's another thing that that makes me kind of go have a little bit of pause is getting this guy off worth that risk i i you know is part of the ambiguity for me too because uh, okay ben gazzara's character in the movie is i don't like him i think he's (laughs) just he's just kind of like one of these guys i don't trust him i uh, he gives me a creepy feeling and i'm like i kind of want him to go to jail (laughs) there's there's no emotion there's like nothing there so that that's the only the only time he really freaks out and kind of shows any emotion is when his cellmate is testifying and he flips out on him and calls him a liar which makes me think that 
the cellmate's not lying about right. what he said because he's gotten caught and it's just like yeah, yeah. I, I hate him so <laughs> it, it, it makes it, it and there it, there is tension between um between laura and manny she said like they say like opposite things all the time when paul asks her specifically is it a happy marriage and she says yes and does he have any reason to be jealous no I've never done anything like that. But then also that same night um, mm-hmm. when she's drunk at dancing at, at the bar and he pulls her out, um, she's thinking like, maybe he should go to jail. Maybe this would be a way to, to get out of this right. marriage. And, but she's like, but I don't really think that. Like, I, I think it sometimes, but I, I don't really believe it. I don't really want it to happen. But it's not, They she says it's a happy marriage. It's obviously not. There's obviously Their interactions are just mistrust. so cold, you know? yeah. And I just, I hate that because I, I cannot read that. I cannot read what happened. Is she, is she afraid of him? Is she just afraid of his jealousy? Has he gotten violent with her before? They, they kind of bring it up that I think he, uh-huh. he slapped her at a party one time or something, but there's no, like, nobody really admits to that. And like I said, like, I, I do think no matter what their story is at the point, I think he must have hit her at some point that night. I think her being beaten up is the, definitely from him because there's no way that he would react to something like this, whether it was rape or not mm-hmm. without blowing up in some yeah, way. That, I that think, big you know, black eye, the welt on her cheek is just, ugh, it's tough to see, you know, <laughs> one of those things where it's, I, I, I like that character, Laura, she's oh, yeah. lively and she's got a spark you know, and all these things and you, it's clear that she's whatever's happened, whatever really happened. She's not appreciated at the very least by her husband. Yeah. And at worst he beats her. It's somewhere on that spectrum and it's just makes you, yeah, you kind of wonder. sorry for her in every, in every way, whatever happens, mm-hmm. whatever their relationship is like, you know, that she's, just not I, I just kind of right. want her to be free of this guy. And I know, but it's always hard to dislike <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> you know, no matter, no matter what, you know, because he's Jimmy Stewart, but he does have gross little moments. Like yeah. You're, like you're talking about he like does. with her. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I don't know what to add to that. It's it really hard to is. talk about, it, isn't so it? Uh, I didn't think this talking about this movie would make me feel kind of, kind of tense like this i feel a little <laughs> uncomfortable i don't i don't exactly know why it's just sort of digging into it i think that's kind of the point of the. essentially i think that's kind of uh-huh. the point of the movie you know you have all these questions in your mind it, it's making you think about these things it's also making you think about how like again like with especially in terms of rape culture yeah. and victim blaming how mm-hmm. you think in those terms it's asking you to really confront those kind of things. It is. And I think you think about this in 1959. I, this had to be, you yeah. know, again, just a gut punch. And Otto Preminger was always pretty politically progressive in his movies, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, where he uh, looked a lot to sort of the dark side of society and say, how can we deal with this? And what are we doing in this world of ours? So it's it's interesting. In that way, I think he's yeah, really he perfect definitely. for this. That he that he fought especially mm-hmm. for the language, I think in the movie because, like I said, he was able, they were able to use these kind of words that had not been yeah. heard in the movie before, like 
talking about a sexual yep. climax in a movie never been talked about before but he thought it was really important that they hear it like you would hear it actually in a courtroom this is how mm-hmm. they would actually talk about it and that's that's important in it but it also yeah it does it does hit yeah. uh, a little and, bit harder and you know well, <laughs> was quite a forceful individual <laughs> and so i think he was able to get his way a lot he along with you know spartacus and kubrick was part of the breaking of the blacklist for example uh, so there there was he was quite a forceful man <laughs> and and you can see that in this movie too just by its its runtime i mean it's a 3 hour movie oh god and t- Two i hours know and 40 it, minutes close but i mean this is as long <laughs> as the godfather and it's a courtroom drama do you, do you not, ever not feel it though no i never it's feel. it's a very well paced movie um, but, you know, you think about that, mm-hmm. you know, for a movie in 1959, that isn't a biblical epic to be to be almost three hours long sure. is unusual. <laughs> Let's put it that way for him to get his way and get final cut and get his language yeah. in and to get all of this happening is just kind of proof. I think that Premager was a force of nature, something to be reckoned with. And this is another movie like. No matter how long it is, I, I don't know exactly no, what No, I no, no. There's lose. nothing to lose. There's nothing to lose from it. Because, I mean, even aside from, like, we haven't even talked about, there's a whole other character that becomes important to the case, oh, yeah. uh, Mary mm-hmm. Blount. She also works at Barney Quill's bar. Um, as he, as Paul finds out, or Parnell actually finds out, another important character, he has a whole other arc yeah. on his own that we'll talk about, I think, at the end. Um <coughs> He finds out that Mary Pallant was right. Barney Quill's daughter, and there's but there's a whole rumor thing going on in town that lovers. they're actually mm-hmm. they're lovers that that she is his mistress, and which kind of makes a great moment with uh, with her and dancer when again. She's it's, do you know what that moment is? That's the that's <laughs> the moment it. that yeah, that's, that's the same moment the verdict from the where, verdict, where yeah. she says you know they made me change it to a nine, and you know the unflappable yeah. lawyer is suddenly speechless and the thing is and and it's the same yeah. response was like never ask that i thought in my head was you know never ask a question you don't know the answer to don't ask a question you don't you know, know the answer um, to so yeah. it was exactly. it was a nice uh tie-in to between the movies too yeah and she's an interesting character to bring into the mix because everyone is very mm-hmm. protective of her it seems like in the movie that's that's kind of um that's kind of the thing with her character is that um, Paquette, you could, I could go either way on Paquette. He acts like kind of a jerk sometimes, but also you kind of feel like he he's he's loyal mm-hmm. to a fault in a way. He's loyal in yeah. ways that he shouldn't be. Maybe to Barney, if again, if Barney really right. did rape Laura, but he's also loyal to Mary. You know, he's very protective of her. But through the other characters and through the way she acts, she's a very su- sweet lady, very straightforward, and she's one that you you really believe whatever she says. And so she kind of comes in as that that last minute witness that Paul brings in. One thing from uh, the case was that on the, on that night, um, Barney apparently like mm-hmm. ripped off her panties and they couldn't find them at the scene, so they're missing. And so Mary Pallant comes in. After um, Paul has talked to her, because he's he's saying, like, I think Al is trying to protect you about your father. And you're obviously very loyal to your father. You don't want to believe that he could have done this. But 
it, so it kind of plants that seed in her head and she comes in with the panties apparently that she found in the laundry chute at the end which is another kind of thing where you, i could see something i could see two different sides to what yeah. that actually means you don't you don't believe for one thing that paul or anybody else planted them i think because they set her up as a very truthful character so i i do believe that she found them the way that she did but again it's a thing where you can you can see it as you believe that barney raped laura and took took her panties or being a jerk took him as a souvenir after they had sex right, you know yeah. what i mean it could be <laughs> either one of those it's just like that's what the whole movie does like everything could mean uh-huh yeah, and again, like we've already said, is part. It's the frustration and the strength of the movie. Yeah, because um, exactly. Honestly, if it was, I don't know if we would be talking about this movie on the same level that we are if it gave easy answers. If it gave, if it, I don't think it would ring yeah. true if everything was spelled out and neatly packaged mm-hmm. in a final answer. If there was like a yeah. flashback to like, oh no, like this is what actually mm-hmm. happened. No, I think I think it really is a strength is that mm-hmm. it's very. Ambiguous. I like an ambiguous movie. <laughs> I, I gotta admit, I'm, I, I that's something that I find myself in my column writing that a lot. This is an ambiguous mm-hmm. movie, you know, because I write I wrote a little bit about a Val Luton movie, and Val Luton movies are very much that way. They're they don't spell everything out, and the innocence doesn't spell everything out for you. And it makes those movies more enduring. And I think that's true of this one, too. Yeah. Totally. Because it not only makes you think about the case, it makes mm-hmm. you think about the characters. It really, I think it gets you, it's kind of a good movie to watch to really make you pay attention and read characters. Especially when you're watching Manny and Laura in the courtroom, or just any time when they're really together. The, the looks they give each other you're wondering if it's like mm-hmm. this is the plan that that they made together they made up the story to help get Manny off for murder or if it's if it's that uncomfortableness between them because of what actually happened to her mm-hmm. and his reaction to that you know it's hard to see it it's it's hard to read like what is going on what's unspoken between they the two are of them. kind of inscrutable <laughs> and it's Ugh. It's one of the, again, brilliances of the movie, though. So. Yeah. Like I said, he only mm-hmm. hugs her that one time. After and you she don't testifies. really know what Polly thinks of it all either. I think he I believes think he does too. her. Uh-huh. And believes, I think he believes the yeah. story that but they But I tell. don't know that he entirely uh, buys their relationship being happy. Oh, no, um, but I think you're. I think he does believe that uh, she was raped, though. Um, yeah, he I don't think he. I don't think he would do the case if he didn't believe it. And he has such great moments, by the way, too, um, where he uh-huh. stands up for her like that in the courtroom. Just even bringing the rape into the case, like the the prosecution wants to yep. not even bring it up. He says when he's talking to the judge, like they want to separate the motive uh-huh. from the act. Like, how can you do that? It's like the trying core to separate from the skin uh, without the breaking core the skin from of the apple. apple. Yeah. All right, Sergeant. Now, would you tell the court what words Lieutenant Mannion actually used to describe the trouble his wife had had? Objection, Your Honor. We have been over this before. This information would not be relevant to any issues before the court. Now, this statement concerning some trouble was brought out during the direct examination of Sergeant Dargo. 
Up to now, you've adroitly restricted all testimony as far as Laura Mannion's concerned. All right, the cat's out of the bag. It's fair game for me to chase it. This is a sore point, Mr. Beegler, and it's getting sore. I'd like to hear from the prosecution. The burden is on the defense to prove temporary insanity at the time of the shooting. Now, if the reason for the alleged insanity is important to this case, then that is a matter for a competent witness, an expert on the subject of the human mind. What the defense is trying to do is introduce some sensational material for the purposes of obscuring the real issues. Your Honor, how can the jury accurately estimate the testimony being given here unless they first know the reason behind this whole trial? Why Lieutenant Mannion shot Barney Quill? Now, the prosecution would like to separate the motive from the act. Well, well that's, that's like trying to take the core from an apple without breaking the skin. Well, now, the core of our defense is that the defendant's temporary insanity was triggered by this so-called trouble with Quill. And I begged the court, I, I begged the court to let me cut into the apple. Our objection still stands, Your Honor. Objection overruled. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's such a great moment to me. Is like I, I beg the court to let yeah, me cut into the apple. Probably, I love that scene. That's up there for favorite moments <laughs> for me in this. I, I love also for me one of the things I really like is the interactions between Dancer and Beekler, because you can tell mm-hmm. they kind of like sparring with each other. They may like each oh, other yeah. a little bit, even you know. They're sort of like you're a worthy adversary, and I see what you're mm-hmm. doing. And I appreciate it that you really know your stuff. Because mm-hmm. Paul is very much about kind uh-huh. of being theatrical in the courtroom and making a scene. And there are parts where Dancer like kind of laughs at him. He's like, but not laughing at him, but laughing like, yeah, there are damn, these he's good. Great moments, you know, where they're where they're just kind of he just kind of chuckles at him. It's like, oh, it's like you, you yeah. sly dog, <laughs> you know. Um, that I love mm-hmm. that. Okay, there's a part where Dancer is standing between... The, he keeps on moving in the frame, and yes. Stuart keeps on poking out from behind his back. <laughs> it's so... It's shot so well, I love that. It's like, uh, uh, Your Honor, objection, you know, the he's... Uh, b- b- pl- Prosecutor blocking is blocking my view, my view of, the of the witness. Yeah, that's when Laura's Beautifully on the shot. And the thing, is, the thing is, this is maybe slightly more auteurist, I suppose, in its look, and how it's shot, than the verdict, but it's not super flashy either it's cool i I, yeah. I like the way it's done and there's sort of this this uh something on the judge's bench it's like this pole and he splits the frame sometimes with this pole in the middle and you know you have one person on one side and another person on the other and you know just sort of these interesting visual touches that um denote separation in space and it's it's cool so what do you think about just Paul as a lawyer. Well, he's overall. sort of like he's sort of What's like Columbo, where he comes off like uh-huh. or, and I've mentioned these two in conjunction before, uh, and or Kinderman, you know, um, in The Exorcist, where where they they're just kind of like they come across at first sight as kind of bumbling a little bit and playing a playing a part to throw people off a bit. 
the where I saw that the most is when uh, Dancer sort of first shows up and they go into the judges' chambers and they have that little thing. It's like, ah, we'll we'll bring in a we need to bring in a psychiatrist of our own, and you know we don't need to file a, anything formal about this. We can we can just for the sake of time make it happen, right? And because he thinks that he can pull one over on on Beekler and Paulie's like. I think you better go ahead and file it formally. You know, and that's that's sort of the moment that I thought, okay, he's he's really knows what he's doing. He does, and he does, and he's Every not, and he's trying to make you think that he doesn't, just a, at least a little bit. So I think that's why there's this this banter, sort of visual banter that arises between. Uh, dancer and Paul in particular, because the other lawyer sort of fades into the background as George C. Scott sort of fades, you know, comes comes into the he's forefront so towards the end of the case. He just sort of takes over because he's more formidable. Yeah, because when Paul um, says something, they they the prosecution makes an objection, and then Paulie says, "Well, while we're protesting things, like yeah, I, I love this moment with him for some reason. It's like, I'm just like a humble, again, he's like the, doing the whole humble country lawyer thing. It's like, I don't need these two guys coming at me at the same time, judge. Can you like help me? Like he's saying, he makes the judge rule like whoever opens with the witness, that's who does all the, the objections and everything. But he, yeah, he, he's very, he's much playing it up for the judge and for the, the rest of the courtroom that he's, that he's just like this meager little lawyer up against the, the right. big bad lawyers from, from Lansing, like they said. No. But he's not no. at all. He's He knows exactly what he's doing. And like um, like I said, I love when he's like just uh, – as soon as he sits down at the table he, and the prosecution is doing their questioning, he's like just putting together mm-hmm. his little fishing lures. Looks like he's not paying attention at all. But he is. Like as soon as it's his turn, he's like he's ready to go. He knows exactly what he's going to say. And he comes at him yeah. like hardcore every single time. I just, I kind of, I just don't, I love that. And he also kind of tries to get in with the judge at one point when they go into the chambers and um, he gives him that law book that has Uh a fishing lure inside. He know he did that deliberately as a way to kind of make a connection with the judge because they have a little conversation about fishing at that point. And so he's really smart in that way. Like not in a way to be manipulative, but just to kind of like. uh, He can get what he wants out of the situation yeah and he knows just yeah. the right buttons to push at the right time to make them happen yeah and dancer uh-huh. sees that he knows he knows that that's exactly what yeah which doing. makes him <laughs> makes them the worthy adversaries and they're not neither one is like unlikable you don't have you don't have a no. you don't, I don't have, hate dancer. no not at all i don't hate dancer He's not like Con-Cannon i hate concannon at all yeah uh concannon no. is you're you're supposed to hate concannon uh, you're not supposed to hate Dancer, I don't think. I think the way that George C. Scott plays him, too, is amiable enough mm-hmm. that at first you're kind of like sort of put off by the big guy, you know, from 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 out there. Stuffy. But then, yeah. honestly, it's the whole thing where he says, you know, I learned a French word in the war. <laughs> you know, it's, it was sort of the moment where, where it sort of shifts a little bit, you know, and you start to see mm-hmm. uh, that he's a little bit more amiable than you originally thought and mm-hmm. yeah you would think like with a different case you know you can see him being empathetic you know towards people if it was 
when you watch it, it's like, I don't really like the part where they tried not to even mention yeah. the rape at all in the case. But they have to do that because if they did, that's incredibly damaging uh-huh. to the, the prosecution. But <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I do really love Dancer. Like, he, he's... And yeah, Dorsey Scott plays him. He's he's very cool. He's very sure of himself, but like not in a super. It's one of those things that really way. helps to have George C. Scott play he's the character. Just, you know, because uh, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was an early role for him at the time, of course. So he was not hugely known. We don't. They didn't know him then, like we know him now. Obviously, this was before Strange Love. <laughs> you know, this was before all those other kinds of things that we've seen him in. So to see him in this, kind of knowing what we know now, I think is even more, makes it even better. I mean, than, than it may have been even then. Uh, because it's a remarkable perf- sort of featured performance. It's not huge, but he sort of steals every scene he's in, you know, and to, or at least holds his own uh, against a veteran like Jimmy Stewart. Because, I mean, Jimmy Stewart at this point is, he really is, you know, he's Jimmy Stewart. He's very well uh, said in his reputation uh, by sure. this time. So, um, I sure. do want to talk about Parnell, though, because I honestly never really gave that much, I don't know, never gave as much thought to his character as I did to everybody else. But he has several really great moments especially toward the end, like you were talking about with the, with the other movie and his great quote when uh-huh. they were talking about juries. I think Parnell has like a great little uh-huh. speech about juries when they're waiting for, they're at, at Paul's house and they're like waiting for the jury to come back with their verdict. He has a great little thing. He says, he's just sitting there off on the chair and he's just all of a sudden comes up with this great quote where he's like, 12 people go off into a room, 12 different minds, 12 different hearts from 12 different walks of life, 12 sets of eyes, ears, shapes, and sizes. And these 12 people are asked to judge another human being as different from them as they are from each other. And in their judgment, they must become of one mind, unanimous. It's one of the miracles of man's disorganized soul that they can do it. And in most instances, do it right well. God yeah, bless it's, a, it's a great moment. And he's a great character. You know, he's a conscience. He's a bit of a mentor. It's and that that moment, yeah, is I great. Thought that was a, I thought that was a great quote about Drake because it, it's so true when you really think about of, it. Like it's sort of almost a, a little bit like you know Paul Newman's closing statement. You know, it's very optimistic about, uh, and we tend in twenty twenty one we tend to not be particularly optimistic about our justice system, and this movie both. Yeah. More often than not, we hear. Yeah, and so people. this yeah. this movie and the verdict both kind of have you know there is a nobility in this imperfect system that we have. Uh, it acknowledges the imperfection, but th- that that really does help. I think the point of the movie is to kind of put the viewer well, in the jury's yeah. seat, like I said, which is the reason why it's so ambiguous and that you can see it so many different ways. It's like. Okay, imagine now if you actually had to make a legal decision yeah. on this case. Uh, we're talking about it now, like, neither one of us can. We're like, Yeah, I mean, coming to a conclusion on this would be a very <laughs> difficult thing. And coming to a unanimous conclusion yeah. on this would be a very difficult thing. So, Yeah. yeah. I just kind of love that quote very, from, from Parnell. Very, yeah, I like But um, in terms of his character, like we said, like he's kind of the, 
the older or alcoholic friend of him. Um, one thing that Paul asks him, you know, when he's helping him with the case, he's like, I want you to help me with this case, but I need you to uh-huh. stay off the booze for it so that we can get it done. And I kind of love that little moment um, with the three of them, with, with Paul and Parnell and Maida. And she she's so sweet in that scene. Like, she really cares for, for both of them. And, and she helps encourage them. She's like, just try it, you know. <laughs> try to be sober for a little bit. Which, you know, it's got to be a hard thing, obviously. Yeah. But um, she shows, they both show in that yeah. scene that they believe in him. Which I love. He does that whole thing, thing where, he, where he's ta- where they're studying in the, and he's saying, hey, this, this cola is starting to taste like uh, whiskey or whatever. Uh, I thought that was... <laughs> or he like or he like burps at one point and he's like oh, damn strawberry <laughs> soda <laughs> so so you he can is. see that he's uh-huh. trying and i i love that and he's such yeah. yeah he's such a great guy and at the end especially is where i really i finally saw like his arc you know at the end when they're he and paul are are driving back to the trailer where they're gonna find that laura and Split. manny have <laughs> skipped out on them but um, I love when they're driving, um, Parnell says, you know, I used to think that the world looked better through yeah. a glass of whiskey. But now he admits that he's wrong. And he's like, I think it looks a little, a lot better this way. And I want to keep it that way, which means he's going to try and stay sober, which is yeah, it's, awesome. It's <laughs> a nice you know? touch, beautiful moment. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul says, you know, like, I think I've got a new mm-hmm. law partner there. So giving him that, way that, back in. that new... Lease on life. I thought it was. Yeah, that's it's interesting, you know, that I think that relationship is in a lot of ways sort of mirrors in different ways the relationship between, you know, Mickey and uh, Frank and the verdict as well. <laughs> you know, this because you could yeah. you could picture that conversation between the two with Paul Newman sort of in the uh, role of ah, shit. What's his name? Parnell. And then Parnell. Mickey sort of in the role of Paul there. You know, I, I, I bringing you back. Yeah. I welcome you back. You know, uh, kind of thing. This, this, this movie a lot, is a lot, <laughs> and so I, I'm, I'm glad we talked about it. I'm glad it made uh, me a little uncomfortable. I think that's part of the point of the movie. So hopefully, I didn't say anything too stupid <laughs> or or anything no, about it. You know, because again, these are these are hard subjects, but you know, they're important to talk about. That's really why mm-hmm. I like this movie because every time I I watch it, it gets me thinking. Every single time I'm thinking the same things, I still can never come to any conclusion that I am satisfied enough in my mind. Years and years later, since I first saw it, like over twenty years later, like I'm still thinking about this movie and I'm still having that. I'm still wrestling with those same things, which is kind of the point of the movie is to get you to think about these subjects and think about again, think about how you think about certain yeah. things and and that way i think it's really brilliantly done very fascinating movie that just i'm very yeah. happy i picked this one even though yeah it was hard to talk about and i'm not particularly happy with some of the things i had to say but like that's what this movie does it makes you think question yourself in those ways it's just so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? self-examination <laughs> exploration is not always the most fun yeah. thing to, to do but i mean you know why we think no. things and why they would even come into our mind, whether we even totally believe them or not, you know, uh, is, is an interesting thing to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, from 1959, it's pointing out things that still need to be changed oh, in the course, culture yeah. now in yeah. 2021, which is, 
amazing and fucking sucks. Well, I mean, <laughs> things obviously change, haven't changed a whole lot you know, in terms of rape culture. Slow and painful, often, you know. It's a little too slow when yes, we're talking I about agree. rape culture. Though. I agree. So I'm glad you're willing to have that conversation. Of course, yeah. Because I... <laughs> I do really love this movie, and it's just, um, just as a movie itself, like I said, it's it's almost three hours long, two hours and 40 minutes, but I'm mm-hmm. engaged the whole time. Never feels nah. boring or slow to me, and the acting is, is top-notch, and you, know, you have these wonderful actors in the four main roles, and even the, all the little side characters, like, there's so much life there in is. this movie, and there I is. love it. Definitely. Okay, so we're moving on to three hours here in our recording time, so we should probably <laughs> wrap it up a little bit here, but... Um... I am I am allowing yeah. it for this one though because there's a lot both to get of into them. Both I mean, <laughs> honestly, I feel like there was more to go yeah. into with the verdict than I thought. Again, you know, cutting into the core <laughs> with both of these. <laughs> so let's yeah, keep our recommendations kind of short if you can. So you want <laughs> me to go first? Up. Okay, so I'm going to recommend yeah, uh, Sidney Lumet's book "Making Movies," a terrific book. Uh, and yeah, it was written during the days of film and work prints and dailies and stuff. Uh, So that's an element in it, but it is just how his process worked. It was his advice to upcoming filmmakers. Really? I'm not a filmmaker, but I found this move, this book to be utterly engaging and everything about it is just completely enjoyable. It's written in a not overly technical way and it's very understandable and just a terrific read. And it's kind of shocked the hell out of me that it was such a terrific read. Uh, but yeah, uh, Making Movies by the master, uh, Sidney Lumet. Okay, mine is obviously going to be a little bit weird because I like to do different things. If you need like something um, a little bit lighter after this discussion, a little binge-worthy show that I really enjoy. And this is going to be late because this is not coming out until May, but just yesterday they renewed The Circle for season two. Did you ever watch no. The Circle on Netflix? <laughs> I It's one of those like reality shows that I think a lot of people like completely avoided, but you really need to watch it because it's, it's so cute. It's hard to explain exactly what it is. It's like a, it's a social media okay. experiment basically where they put a um, bunch of different people in a building and they were each given their own like little apartment and they're not allowed to see or speak to each other except through this thing called the circle, which is there's all these like little TVs around in their apartment. It's voice activated. And they basically, it's basically their, their profile. They can, <laughs> they make a profile that the other people in the circle can see. And the thing is they can choose to either come into the circle as themselves, or they can choose to be somebody else. Cause it's, it's whatever you're putting out on the internet, basically. You know what I mean? It's wow. so weird. And they have interactions. They can have, like I said, they don't get to talk to each other. They can only see each other's pictures that they choose to put up on these little profiles of the circle and what they choose to say about themselves and how they talk in their little interactions. And it's it's so kind of funny to watch it because these people are alone in their apartments and but they have to like talk out loud, pretty much to themselves. They're pretty much talking to themselves the whole time just to keep it interesting or else they would just be totally silent. It's voice activated. The circle is so they, every, every response that they make, they have to say like, um, uh, you're really great. I love you. Hashtag, you know, heart 
and then they hit send. <laughs> so it's, it sounds like it's totally goofy, but the people that they picked for at least the first season, they're awesome people. Like a lot of them actually chose to oh, to cool. remain themselves yeah. in the circle. Like so, they're just acting as themselves, and they're really kind of the standout people. And like I've been waiting for a second season, and apparently it just went up yesterday. So I'm ready to start binging that. But I was like, give it a chance. It's actually a lot okay. better than you. Yeah, think it, it is. Hey, you know, always looking for <laughs> stuff to just sort of turn on and just sort of you know ignore <laughs> you know i mean not not i don't mean that in a bad way just just uh have on while while the evening is winding down okay. yeah it kind of only works it's one of the things where it only works mm. if you like the people and you really like the people at least in the first season so i'm just i'm just hoping that the second season well, is like cool. that too <laughs> it'll be a fun thing to binge all right so our next episode i can't believe, Ryan, I can't believe we're already on? to another forever favorites episode uh, it just seems I like know. it flew by. It yeah, like we just um, did one. <laughs> we just sort of recorded a lot over the last several weeks here, and we got a lot of a lot of episodes so. sort of ready to roll. Um, but our next one is Forever Favorites uh, number three, and so right in the middle here, I am bringing a movie that I don't revisit that often, partially because of its length and partially because it just hits me really hard. But it's so powerful to me and that is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia from 1999 and then mine is going to be from 1975 it is Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest so I think it's another pair of movies where there's there, a lot to there get are. into uh, you know, part of it is just the sheer length of both of them <laughs> um, so <Yeah. laughs> but damn are both of those good movies <laughs> Uh, so there's a lot to dig into with these. And, um, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm, and a little bit nervous to be honest. You said this a is going to be a hard one to talk about. It, Magnolia will Magnolia. be a little bit hard to talk about. I think I haven't watched it in a while for sort of partially for personal reasons. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to revisiting it though, because uh, it really does uh, affect me deeply, and I think that's part of its power for me, and why it's one of my favorites, and will yeah. always be one of my favorites, even if I watch it less than you know some of the others on the list. Well, Cuckoo's Nest, I don't really know why it's one of my favorites. It's just another movie where I can't pinpoint like this specifically. It's one that just uh-huh. fascinates me. With the um, the acting and the story and what you can read from it about about people and about humanity and about the way we treat each other, it's just it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things in in that movie, and I can't wait to get into it because maybe it'll help me kind of really say like, why do why am I why do I keep coming yeah. back to and this? Again, one? I haven't seen Cuckoo's Nest since more than fifteen years <laughs> since I saw Cuckoo's Nest, so mm-hmm. it's it's wow. been some time. And I remember the last time I watched it, though, so that's interesting. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to both the, those movies. So, real quick, uh, where can we find us? Uh, you can find us on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Michelle. Uh, you can find me at Brian D. Kuyper. Uh, you can find the show at Movie Life Pod. And we look forward to seeing you there uh, if you drop in and send us a tag or whatever. <laughs> we we you, we like to interact yeah, with our totally. listeners. Yeah, Please do. If you listen to it and yeah. like it, let us know. Okay, well then, thank you all for listening. 
thank you so much. Give us those uh, rates and reviews on iTunes if you could. And we will see you next we'll time. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.